You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning from 7.45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. A very good morning to you. It's been a very busy weekend of sport and we're covering it all over the uh, roughly next two hours or so. We're here with you until half past nine this morning as ever if you want to get involved. If you've got an opinion you'd like to get off your chest, we're on a YouTube stream. Uh, you can drop a comment on the bottom there. You can also get us on Twitter, at Off The Ball or at Off The Ball AM. Just use the hashtag OTBAM and we'll pick it up for you. Owen is here. How are you? Very well. How are you? Happy birthday to Declan Rice who turns 20. Yeah, the big one, the big 2-0 for him yeah. today. Uh, big... Birthday, a big decision to be made, Declan. I'm sure he knows about that coming down the tracks. Happy birthday to uh, all of uh, Munster fans for the gift that Leinster gave them in Joey Carberry. Well, the, the, the gift of life, I think, is what Joey Carberry's given to a lot of people. I think, uh, all things considered, the absolute correct decision for uh, sports fans, for rugby fans, for humanity in general, really. And happy birthday to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I got the Man United job at the weekend. Is it, it his is. birthday today? No, just made it up. Oh, okay, well, uh, happy birthday to you, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, if that's earlier, that's late, whatever it may be. Uh, yeah, like, it did seem it was the battle for the hot seat at Old Trafford there yesterday, and, and, uh, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's prize is to become the permanent manager. I never wanted lip readers more than that bit when he's actually, Pochettino comes over, like, he, you know... Solskjaer has his back to him Pochettino taps him on the back Solskjaer sees who it is and goes in for an embrace and then grabs him again for another word what was that other word? don't you dare touch my job well, I was like stay the hell away from Old Trafford how do, you like, how do you like them apples? don't you dare try and stab me in the back I know, I know what job you're after Maurizio and it's mine like, I, I do like to think that um, everything Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is absolutely horrible and uh, everything he says is disgusting and that when they say he's a baby-faced assassin, he really is. Like that cute pic of uh, Marcus Rashford saying, oh, t- tell us the, the, the cool stories from 99 on Instagram. It was actually Ole Gunnar Solskjaer sitting in them out, down telling them that they're all shit and that they need to really up their game. That's what I really hope, that like uh, underneath the surface of it all, that uh, he's actually just spitting poison all the time. So that's what I think he said to, to Pochettino yesterday. Is that the most excited you've been watching Man United games as an Arsenal fan in your life? Yeah, without question. It was absorbing. It was the, it was the most excited I've been watching Yeah, you know, as, as, as any neutral observer in a Premier League game this season. That was right up there as, as a game that you were just sucked into and couldn't look away from. I think it's a Rorschach test for football fans as well. Whether or not you were like, ah, oh, De Gea wasn't actually that good. They, all, they kept shooting it straight at him. Or if you're like, that's one of the most amazing... Uh, psych outs from a goalkeeper of an entire football team against world class opposition that you're ever going to see the fact that they were kicking it straight at him was because it's David De Gea mm-hmm. it's like oh uh, uh, what am I going to do I, there's nowhere I can put this that it's going to go in I just thought it was amazing yeah like sometimes David De Gea oh, that was straight at him oh he didn't even have to work for that one. Oh, he's just diving for the cameras those people each individual won on its own, not brilliant. Collectively, one of the greatest performances by an individual in a team sport that you're ever going to see. Yeah, I'm still not quite sure if David De Gea definitely has four limbs. We had a poll there. Um, so, Spurs now, Man United won. I'll read this out for those. those, those for, and also, I can tell you, if you don't actually want to look at our uh, haggard faces of a morning, then you can just listen to this as a radio show on offtheball.com. Hit the listen live now. Uh, it's the big button at the top. It's throbbing at the top of the website. You can't miss it. Huge win for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Post-match analysis live. Brian Caron off the ball right now. So that was from yesterday. Uh, vote. Did they deserve it? Tactics spot on. 
26%. Blessed to help. 10 plus saves, 16%. Who cares? Smash and grab, 18%. Well, we can see Tommy on the Off the Ball account has voted for who cares, smash and grab there. So uh, we can get his own personal opinion on that one. David De Gea, like, it, it is... It, the, the revisionism over who is the best goalkeeper in the world was in full flow there yesterday. Listening to um, Nathan in commentary saying, there's no question that the, the, the debate has been around Edison and Allison as the best goalkeeper, but there's no question that David De Gea is the best shot stopper. And then 10 minutes later, it was David De Gea is the best goalkeeper in the world, full stop. And it does come down to the idea of does his shot stopping prowess, and he is the best shot stopper in the Premier League, make him the best goalkeeper in the world? Or is the renewed uh, vision of sweeper, key, sweeper keeping and the importance of a ball playing goalkeeper uh, pushing down the rungs in the ladder a small bit? Well, I'm not, I'm not so sure. I, I think David De Gea is unparalleled when it comes to putting in a show-stopping performance like that. He did it against Arsenal around Christmas time last year as well. He just has the ability to pull these out of the bag. And I do uh, think that he psychs the opposition out. Yeah, though. I think there's truth in that. Like, I really feel like this isn't... And I, I, I think this is the same Rorschach test for Jacob Stockdale. It's like, that guy's very lucky. A lot. Again. And again. And again. And again and again and again and again and again and again. And again. Stockdale also... Like, just with a whiff, with his Jedi mind trick, forcing defenders to go completely the wrong way and the ball bouncing into his hands. There was no way he should have scored that try the other day. No. He was like, oh, he's just kicking this now because it looks like, what? No way! It made no sense. It's kind of, when he does the kick, it's like, come on now, Jacob. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, like, put it away. We've seen you do it a couple of times before. You're not going to be able to do it again. It's ridiculous. It, the, more, the most remarkable thing about that Jacob Stockdale performance was the one that didn't bounce his way. When he was in, and there was first half. in the first half, and there wasn't three uh, racing defenders racing back, and it was just him, and all he had to do was get down on top of the ball, and then it didn't bounce his way. It was like that was the most un-Jacob Stockdale thing I've ever seen. So I was not surprised to see that the ball bounces away, and the three racing men get completely befuddled by what actually happened there. Uh, Mark Shields is online um, on YouTube, I think, saying uh, Stockdale must be the best winger in world rugby. He's not bad. He's definitely not bad. And remember, this is very early on in his career. Like his pace is important to him, but it's not the only thing he's got. It's not like he's going to lose his pace. Mm. Um, like, you know, he's going to add defensive skills. He's also going to add even better. Like so, he was lucky with the intercept try against Wales last year. He was lucky with the way the ball bounced against. He's lucky. He's lucky a lot for somebody who actually probably is not that lucky at all and just works very hard. Well, I think the fact that you know we speak about one baby-faced assassin in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I think he's even more baby-faced and he's even more cold-blooded. Like, he just smiles and then he hurts you very, very badly. And it's great that, I guess, in, in the general Irish sense of things, he is on our side because when it comes to just a ruthless try-scorer in world rugby at the moment, he's right up there. In European rugby, it's hard to put anybody at that level at the moment. When it comes to just pure try-scoring ability, in the world, you've now got to start talking about him in that manner. Of course, he's got to do it for the next couple of seasons before yeah. you actually start saying that and in the World Cup this well, year well last Thursday the Times Ireland did a piece uh, are we over reliant on Jacob Stockton I'm like nah it's no big deal it's fine anybody can do what he's been doing and then it's like actually maybe you know what maybe if he keeps doing this stuff then uh, maybe we are a little bit reliant on him uh, Sean Troy is saying this weekend's NFL wasn't great compared to last we'll speak of Mike Carlson a little bit later on um, I think it's great if you were uh, a Tom Brady fan um, not so great if you were one of those people who'd written Tom Brady off yeah, like uh, obviously American football, one of the greatest sports out there. Some would say it is the greatest sport out there. And when you get the announcers in American football referring to any other sport, you know for a fact that it is one of the best sports in the world. So on Saturday night, <laughs> when I heard Al Michaels query, is Patrick Mahomes, how good a darts player would Patrick Mahomes be? 
I sat there and I was proud in my take that darts is a sport. And I'm sure you kind of gave up the act at that point and said, no, darts is a, is a real sport. It's not just a game because it's being referred to on one of the biggest stages of all. Uh, that the, the NFL announcers would actually stop talking about American football and start talking about darts. But that, like he says it wasn't as exciting as a weekend as last weekend. Probably truth in that in, fact, in the sense that there wasn't any major cock up from a kicker, wasn't any icing of the kicker, drama like that. But seeing the, the performance of Mahomes on Saturday night and just seeing Tom Brady in full flow last night we, is, is excitement enough for me. We are obviously up relatively early on a Monday morning, so I didn't see the end of the um, Eagles Saints game, but apparently the Saints were amazing in that second half, and um, there was a bit of drama there in that one. I don't know. It means you've got the four best teams left, though. Yes. And they're all playing pretty well. And the chance of uh, the Rams against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, which I think we all want to see. Yeah, yeah. There's beef between the Rams and the Saints. The Saints killed them the last time. And um, Michael Thomas uh, was up against... Um, I just remembered the name two seconds ago. Against their cornerback who they signed from the Kansas City Chiefs. His name I've literally just forgotten. But um, scored him for 212 yards and touchdown. And afterwards... Um, the head coach, Sean Payton, was like, yeah, we like that matchup. We really, really like that matchup. It was one-on-one the whole day. It was great. It's Marcus Peters. So Marcus Peters afterwards is like, yeah, I'm really happy to get back. Got an opportunity. Have a bowl of gumbo. Sean Payton. Let him keep talking shit. I like that shit he was talking. So we'll see. It's all set up. There's beef. beef matches with beefs between um, cornerbacks and like Richard Sherman-esque. wide receivers. Yeah. Because now he's got to back it up. Anyway, um, Owen has a, a very important message on behalf of um, everybody who wears red. Not re- no, not at all. I think it's just a, an open letter that I kind of penned on behalf of ropey people, as I said at the top of the show, sports people. I think people that like uh, happy things in general, good things in general. Because, you know, sometimes you watch a game of rugby and humanity just gets it right. So, uh, first of all, to everyone at Auckland for initially recognising the talent of Joey Carberry that will be so suited to the Red of Munster. Uh, a very big thank you to you. Uh, to the Carberry family for bringing those talents back to Ireland. A very big thank you to you this Monday morning. Uh, to those at Black Rock College for doing whatever schools do to make rugby players good enough to play for a legendary province such as Munster, thank you very much this morning. Uh, to Clontarf and to all those people he played with and against in the AIL, preparing him uh, with the required grit to play for the grittiest province of them all, which is Munster. A very big thank you to you this morning. Uh, to those at Leinster for bringing him into the fold, knowing that one day he would simply have to go on to better things like playing for Munster. A big thank you to you this morning. Uh, to Joe Schmidt, I guess we've we got to give him a big thank you. Uh, thank you for being in a situation where he needed Joey Carberry to be Ireland's next great hope at out half. Thank you, Joe Schmidt. Uh, to those at Leinster, especially those at Leinster who thought he was a fullback, thank you. Uh, to David Nusifor, the IRFU as a whole, for realising that he was not a fullback. And to hone his talents at number 10, he would need to go on to a better province, to go on to a better situation and a better culture. A very big thank you to you. So thank you, David Nusifor and the IRFU. And finally, to Johan van Gran and all at Munster for putting him on the right path, the correct path, the chosen path to wear the iconic number 10 red jersey. A very big thank you to you. On behalf of all those people who like sport, who like rugby and who like nice things in general, you've made the correct call and... Uh, you know, just thank, thank you, really. I'm feeling very, very thankful this morning. It's like Irish Thanksgiving Day. You're a prick. I'm just speaking the truth here. Did you miss something? I, uh, did I miss something? No, yeah. no. Like one of the most important parts of his entire... Oh, sorry. Uh, thank you to Jerry uh, Gilroy for getting him out of Leinster. <laughs> uh, the town of a tie. He only played for Black Rock for one year. Well, uh, Come the, on. the... Come on. 
a very happy Monday morning to everybody at FI. Thank you for setting Joey Carberry on the right path. He has now achieved his goal. The next 15 years are going to be beautiful with him playing in, in the red uh, of Munster and wearing the number 10 jersey. Majestic on, on Friday night and uh, the correct call all round. It's great that he's getting um, a little bit of uh, experience before he boomerangs back to Leinster in two years' time to replace Tony Sexton after the Lions tour. Great. It's good that you know, you're know you um, able to play your role as a... Uh, Theatre school, basically, for Leinster. Did you see the smile on his face on Friday night, the kind of coy response to the interviewer asking uh, how good was <coughs> your own performance? Ah, it's good that the, the team is, is getting on track here. Like, do you think someone like Peter O'Mahony will ever let him leave? He's in the Munster clutches now. He hears a Thoman roar. Do you think the people at Thoman Park will let him leave? Uh, He's we'll, hypnotised now. We'll see. So uh, Declan Rice scored his first senior goal in professional football at the weekend. He is 20 years old today. There's just one thing left for him to decide. I think it would have been better for us if he had he scored an OG yesterday and Arsenal <laughs> yeah, won yeah. the match and, and West Ham didn't look very good and he had an average game and, we, and people were talking about the great performance of uh, Emery's team against a weak-looking uh, West Ham team lacking any presence in midfield. Instead, they're talking about the presence of this young boy in the middle of the field. Yeah, turns out he's really good. Here's what's coming up. Uh, I'm going to talk with Mike Carlson around about five past nine. We've got Alan Quinlan in around about 8.35. Um, I'm going to talk from, here from Seamus Coleman. He has been speaking with Stephen Doyle in the aftermath of uh, a return to form for him and for Everton, really, with their 2-0 win yesterday. Um, that came as live on News Talk. Stephen Doyle was on commentary alongside Kevin Caban for that one. And uh, Daniel Harris is going to join us in about 10 minutes' time to talk to us about the excitement around Old Trafford at the moment, the possibility that Gareth Southgate might be the next, or at least be considered to be the next Manchester United manager. We'll talk about everything else that's gone on over the weekend as well. And I'm going to start with the sports pages, though, first. So... Uh, Solskjaer seizes his chance. That's it. So, like the games at Wembley are really good. Like when they're big games and the crowd is full and the Spurs fans are chanting and it's corner after corner after corner after corner for Spurs. They're great. I I always thought it was just me that thought about the venue of a game that actually has material impact on a game of football. As in, it doesn't really. But when a game is good, it's enhanced by the fact that it's Wembley. One of the grounds that does it the opposite way around is Stamford Bridge where you're watching a crap game at Sanford Bridge and you're like, this thing feels tiny. It's yeah. just like a matchbox. Whereas at Wembley, when a game is good, it's like, this looks like the Sahara Desert here. It's just gigantic out there. And it, was, it definitely felt like that yesterday. Like it was, when, you, when you talk about Solskjaer seizing his chance and you talk about David De Gea as well in that context, there's a lot of people this morning who could potentially point out the fact that Manchester United were relatively lucky yesterday. And they were at times, but you can similarly admit that they were lucky. You can similarly admit that David De Gea is potentially the world's greatest goalkeeper, uh, while also admitting that Solskjaer got it right in a number of areas and has been getting it right for a number of weeks now. The first real test has been passed. Oh, it's, uh, like it's this, With flying colours. Uh, yeah. And I, I do think the venue matters, though. When Winks, um, when there's like that interchange and Winks doesn't square the ball back to the penalty spot but uh, squares it across goal, like in a normal venue, that doesn't feel like it's a big moment in a game. It's like, okay, that's just a missed opportunity. Maybe it does, I don't know. It just felt like, ooh, this is Wembley. That's big. This is like a... There's a bang of a cup match off this. Yeah. In a way that there hasn't been off the the rest of the league games. Times Ireland edition this morning, De Gea helped Solskjaer to make history. So first Manchester United manager to win six in a row since... First ever? First ever. First ever. Uh, McCarthy and Bid tempt English pair. This is going to be interesting to see what the response is like, right? So, um... Nathan Redmond, the hunt for Nathan Redmond has been on and it hasn't really, kind of, everybody's a bit like just holding their nose until that passes and it disappears. But if you're Mick McCarthy, your job is to like win games and try and get a new job after this. 
And if Nathan Redmond's going to help you to do that, then you don't really care about the vagaries of international rules or what Irish identity means, do you? It's like, I've got to win. My job is to win. I'm going to do what I can. Daka comes in and plays well for us, scores three goals. He's our best player. Yeah. If that guy comes in, doesn't do anything, what have I lost? One, three caps gone to somebody who doesn't deserve them. Yeah, it's it's true. It, it, like, that does suggest that the short-term... Re- if, you're, if you're Mick McCarthy, what are you thinking? Yeah, like, there, there's no question about that. Like, are, are we really going to be that despondent if Nathan Redmond gets an Ireland cap? I'd say some people will be, yeah. I mean... I would definitely feel that the despondency will be enhanced if Nathan Redmond comes into the Ireland squad and flops. Yeah, I mean, uh, but if he comes in and scores loads of goals, you're going to go, I'm not celebrating that. I'm refusing to celebrate that goal. At the start, potentially. Give it, yeah. give it a couple of no, months. No, I'm turning my back on you, Nathan Redmond. Wait, wait until he adds uh, a goal against Georgia to his goal against Gibraltar, and then we'll talk. Uh, so there's an interesting phone call between Mick McCarthy and Daryl Murphy. McCarthy rings Murphy, and Murphy goes, yeah, how you doing? It's a story. Mick is like, here, listen, come on, you know. Put your put put your retirement on hold, Darth. It's hard to play three games in a week. Shut up and stay by the phone. And that's the end of it. He didn't say no, apparently. So Darren Murphy is like not officially back in the fold, but officially back in the fold, according to Mick McCarthy. Well He literally told him to shut up. <laughs> uh, he's desperately out there hunting uh, for a striker. Of course, Nick McCarthy is a big defender of Daryl Murphy. Daryl Murphy, who of course in I want to say the year twenty fourteen didn't get given the Championship Player of the Year, and Mick McCarthy was livid about this. Who did get the Championship Player of the Year? Patrick Bamford, who ah. of course is on the, the sides of Mick McCarthy at the moment. Yeah. The, the injury-ravaged Leeds United striker, uh, apparently quite open to the idea of playing for the Republic of Ireland in and the Will, near future. Will Keane is the other one. So um, He's going to meet Bamford in Leeds, or has met Bamford in Leeds, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure where exactly that is, because uh, the... the, the Use of the continuous present to describe the tense is a little bit confusing. It makes right. it way more exciting, the continuous present. Yeah. It's, it seems Maybe like this meeting has already happened. Maybe it hasn't. Uh, I take it as a positive that Patrick agreed to meet. I hope he wasn't getting me to travel to Leeds to say he's not interested. That would suggest I haven't met. Well, you just don't know if it's in the past, the present, or the future. No. That's what makes it so exciting. Uh, helping hands, De Gea Heroics. Her, 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 her. For heroics, strengthen case for Solskjaer. It does strengthen the case. It makes it like a really live thing. We were saying, what does he have to do? You know, knock PSG out and the job is his, right? That's it. Mm-hmm. I think if I think that they would make that appointment after the PSG game and roll that thing into the rest of the, the season and yeah. the summer. Well, Adrian made a good point on Friday show that uh, Manchester United... What's, what's, rare, what's rare is what's beautiful. Was that, uh, we looked at the camera for. Uh, that Manchester United are actually being... They're not being helped by the idea that Solskjaer has been doing so well as Manchester United manager that they perhaps didn't expect this at all. That they were 100% expecting to be in a fervent search for his successor right now. Whereas that search has just kind of been like... Should we return to base? Should we just stop this base? Uh, stop the search right now? Like the thing is, it's going to be March before that tie ends, which people tend to forget. That is that enough time for you then to, if Solskjaer gets knocked out healthily by PSG, is the end of that second leg enough time for Manchester United to finally decide that they want to replace Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? I'm not so sure. They need to make that call soon, sooner than that. Sooner than the summer. This, no, the start of March. Uh, not, not the call about who's going to replace him, but the call that they are going to replace him. Oh, well, I think you talk to everybody, and then you have a process, and you give Solskjaer now the opportunity to... If you want somebody like Maurizio Pochettino, you need to be giving them some sort of... You can't go to Maurizio Pochettino and say, well, if, 
we get knocked out by PSG, the job is yours. If well, we beat PSG, the job isn't yours. You need to you need to interview for the job now, Maurizio. It's one of the best jobs in world football. And we're going to double your salary. Do you want this job? Are you interested in this job? What would it look like if you were in charge here, Maurizio? I think it's more of a pursuit of Maurizio Pochettino well, than well, then Maurizio can a job uh, interview. Maurizio can stay where he is with no money in a new stadium that might take them a year or two to settle into. And we might just be tapping down and leaving the shoulder and going, we like the look of uh, Harry Kane there. We'll give you 200 million for him. Does Daniel Levy say yes to that? Daniel Levy says yes. Thank you very much. Pockets 100, gives Maurizio 100. Who knows? <laughs> I think that's... I, I can't see that. I, like, I mean, the club, the club pockets 100, not Daniel Levy, obviously. Obviously. Yeah, just in case the lawyers are getting in touch. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not so sure. I, I think when it comes to those sort of assets, I think Danny Levy knows what he's got and is determined to not lose any of that. And this is his potentially his last great collection of individuals uh, as kind of like an organic football club. To the point you can call them organic, that is. Yeah, I mean... Uh, like more so than the rest of the top six. After that, they've got to change their business model dramatically because you've got to find a Harry Kane replacement, first of all. So that, that means Tottenham have to just nudge their way into the big spending market. But that's their old business model, and they would just buy like, the next Christian Eriksen at that level. On a more mega level. You know, maybe they don't want to be mega. Maybe they just want to be top four and keep it at that. Okay, so the Irish Times, their uh, lead this morning is, this is the real United De Gea. Um, I mean... It was a pretty sensational performance. And then McGrath injury a blight on otherwise perfect weekend. So Luke McGrath went down injured and it looked um, not great. The, they treated him on the pitch immediately uh, for a knee injury and um, he was replaced. It turns out we don't have any other scrum halves at the moment who are fully fit. John Cooney was named to start for Ulster but um, didn't make the game, um, pulled up before the game. Obviously Marmion is out injured as well, so McGrath's gone. So... Suddenly, there isn't a whole heap of strength and depth. Yeah, we're going to do our halfbacks depth chart on Friday's OTBAM to see where they are uh, in terms of what the order is. It seems that when it comes to fit scrum halves, that order is fairly thin. Like, which would you rather have? A full, fully fit Conor Murray and nobody fit behind him, or the situation we were in for the All Blacks where you had. Can, three can, fit do you scrum guarantee halves? me he's going to survive for the duration of the tournament? Not at all. Yeah, well. So that's, that is the thing. Like it was such an opportunity for any of these three. Now the thing is, do we know the extent of John Cooney's injury? No, I don't think we do. Considering he's a pull-up before uh, the match, we would probably that'll become clear over the next twenty-four, forty-eight hours. That, like, you 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 make the leap, and you look at Marmion obviously going through surgery. That Luke McGrath injury did not look good uh, on Saturday. John Cooney pulling up in training just by pure naked eye, looks the least severe of those three injuries. I could be totally wrong here, yeah. and it's speculation, but there could be a situation where John Cooney is the backup scrum half going into the Six Nations, and how that completely changes everything in the, in the sphere of where that depth chart may be going into the World Cup, that John Cooney suddenly is in the spotlight and will get minutes, will play against Italy uh, more than likely. That, that really, because you would have definitely said he was firmly Ireland's fourth-choice scrum half two months ago. Do you rush Sexton back for that first game against England or do you put um, Joey Carberry in now? Well, that's, that's the storyline that may dominate the next couple of weeks. I, th- I think it depends. What are we talking here? 60% fit Johnny Sexton or 80% fit Johnny Sexton? If it's 80% fit Johnny Sexton, you start him against England. If it's 60% fit, you start Joey Carberry. Because 80% fit Johnny Sexton gets you to, whatever, 60, 70 minutes, assuming he doesn't take any, anything substantial in terms of hits or collisions over the course of the game? I, I think you start, if, if he's any less than 100, and there's probably a case anyway for 
saying, okay, this guy's in form, need to give him game time in big games, this is about as big as it comes, let's go, let's roll, let's see what this is. Because it's the last opportunity before the World Cup? Well, so there's three other opportunities after that game. But if Sexton's Sexton unfit, then the start of the Six Nations is going to be the best opportunity because yeah. his fitness will just come back closer to 100% as the weeks roll on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or, or they manage it through and they give him like 40 minutes, 50 minutes, 60 minutes. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, we can talk about this with Alan Quinn a little, little bit later on as well. But the other thing that happened over the weekend, obviously Simon Zebo tweeted about um, a tough place to play, but great effort from the boys. Two important points in the road. Also, I hope my ears deceive me with some comments directed my way from the crowd. Hashtag not on Django wins in the end. Um, so a quick search reveals that uh, Django is the nickname that the Ireland players apparently gave Simon Zebo back in 2013 when he made the squad for the first time. Or maybe they, they inherited it from... <laughs> Uh, monster, who knows? But um, you definitely would have seen Zebo referring to himself as that before in the past as well. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see exactly what comes of this. Apparently, Rassing have not made yet a formal complaint to the PCR. That was certainly the, the case last night, according to the newspapers. We'll chase that up this morning and see if there has been any complaints since. But you would hope that Rassing do make a complaint if anything was said and that it is investigated properly because uh, you know. It's bullshit. There's no way that um, anybody should be hearing stuff uh, at any point on a rugby field in Ireland. Absolutely no way that should be happening. So let's wait and see. But hopefully Simon Zero does make a complaint. Hopefully Rassing follow through with it too and we'll see where it goes. Yeah, that is the lead story on the back page of the Irish Daily Mail this morning. Ulster Probe is the headline. Abuse inquiry launched after Zebo's tweet. The uh, Ulster statement says Ulster Rugby condemns all forms of abuse and will work robustly to investigate any complaints received. Uh, the back page of the Herald this morning is Rice will be my main man. Irish boss McCarthy reveals he will build his team around midfielder if he snubs the English. Uh, and also a story here by Frank Roach. Only Kerry can stop Dublin's run, says Curran. That's uh, Paul Curran who can't wait to see how the Dubs handle uh, the pursuit of a history-making fifth consecutive All-Ireland title, reckons Kerry are their biggest challengers. Back page of the Mirror is, now he's a keeper. Solskjaer hails De Gea as a true United great, as he puts himself in pole position for top job. And Salah penalty, a gross injustice, uh, says uh, the other headline here. Uh, Liverpool clinging on to a seven-point lead at the top of the Premier League, Manchester City. I say clinging on to a seven-point lead, that's kind of a... A bit of a, an oxymoron there. And Manchester City playing tonight against Wolves in the Premier League to try and close that gap back to four. A back page of the Irish Daily Star is simply the best. All I says, David, is world's finest. You've got that Zebo story there. And uh, some uh, positive news regarding Seamus Coleman back in the Everton team for their win yesterday in the Premier League. Back page of the Sun is Wembole Trembley. <laughs> Have a morning to you. No, it's crap. Uh, Pot fears for Crocked Cane. Well, it is the only pun I've got to this. Well, certainly <coughs> the best, probably not as good as Wembley Trembley. Um, uh, you've also got Bonner Rage over Star Trio. So, furious Donegal boss Declan Bonner has refused to confirm reports. He has axed Star forwards Mark McHugh, Stephen McBeerty, and Derek O'Connor. It'll be interesting to see how that story develops over the next couple of weeks with the National League a fortnight away. And finally, for me, the back page of The Guardian is This is the Real United. Brilliant De Gea hailed Solskjaer's team after his save seal victory. All right, Daniel Harris is with us this morning. Daniel, good morning to you. How are you doing? Good, thanks. You're right. Um, yeah, so a, a bunch of people have got in touch who are not Manchester United fans who are saying that if your goalkeeper is man of the match in a game like that and has to make a thousand saves, well then, how can it be a tactical masterclass one? And two, surely Man United have got loads more problems. It's like, well, from where they've come from, it's not a bad result yesterday. 
Uh, no, because uh, uh, if you're talking about the tactics, the tactical plan worked in the first half and not the second half. Um, United played really well in the first half. Um, I think if Pogba had had a better game than he did, they might have been out of sight at half-time because the pass that he played to Rashford to put him through for the goal, that wasn't the first time it was on, but Pogba's, uh, touch and pass, Pogba's touch and passing weren't quite on um, in the first half. And they also had chances in the second half. It's true that subsequently, um, probably in the last half an hour, United kind of sat deep and defended and there was no tactics involved there and they were relying on the fact that they've got a good goalkeeper but they've got a good goalkeeper it's not cheating to have a good goalkeeper and uh, similarly it's not bad luck that Spurs finishing was imprecise whereas Rashford's finish was very precise so I think United deserved the win uh, there's a handy metric for determining who deserved to win a football match and it's called the score and uh, they're improving but I thought it was a good barometer of where United are at the moment is the attack is good enough to give any team aggravation the midfield isn't good enough to protect the defence and the defence isn't good enough to protect the goalkeeper. But it's possible, it's workable for now. There's something to, there's something to work with and they'll get better. Yeah, well, all of a sudden it looks like um, the trio who started up front for Manchester United could be Manchester United players long into the future and that could be a trio that takes them into the future. Um, it looks like uh, Lingard has a role, like a, a, a clearly defined role, um, when the team play that way and that he's more than capable of doing that and he's also getting the best out of Martial and Rashford and actually those three will improve for a run of games and the confidence that a manager like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer gives them. Yeah, I think that's right. In fairness to Jose Mourinho, not a sentence that anyone particularly enjoys saying, but Rashford looked to have stepped it up in the final few weeks that Mourinho was at United and Lingard was one of the few players that improved under Mourinho and Martial also probably improved under Mourinho. So, but the thing about Lingard is that he's not in some elements a United standard player in that United have had better players than him in the past and the best United teams, he wouldn't have got into them. But in this current team, he makes the rest of the players around him play better because he has a good football brain, so he's often in the right place. He has good movement, so he occupies defenders. He's fast, he's not scared, and he doesn't stop running. So you see him score goals um, in Mourinho's last game. He scored a goal against Liverpool because he carried on running, and he was there to anticipate the error. Yesterday, he anticipated Kieran Trippier's pass, and not only did he intercept it, but he laid it down in such a way that it enabled Pogba to move the ball forward. And I was just thinking, if we go back to what we were saying about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's tactics... He probably got a bit lucky in that um, he had a week off where he was able to rehearse a new formation with the players while Tottenham were toiling against Chelsea. But he also took a risk in that if you match up a superior team and Spurs are superior team to United, if you match up a better team, their formation, then the chances are you're going to get beaten because what you're doing is you're mirroring their tactics, except Spurs are more used to playing that diamond formation than United. They play it better than United and they've got better players than United do at the moment. They've got a way of playing that United don't have. So for Solskjaer to take that risk, actually, was a, was a significant decision. And in the first five minutes, I wondered if that actually would prove to be anything, to be something sensible. Because usually, if you're the inferior team, what you want to do is you want to try and penetrate your opponent where they're weak and do something that is different to what they're doing. But actually, it worked really well. And um, in the second half, there was obviously, there's still lessons to be learned because... He wasn't able to affect the flow of the game. Perhaps United had put too much into the first half physically, but he wasn't able to affect the flow of the game particularly, certainly in the last 20 minutes. But that's also the way of things. When two good teams are playing, one's chasing a goal and one's defending a goal, you would expect to see something like what we saw. But you wouldn't. if, if Paris Saint-Germain get that many sites of United's goals, 
they won't, you know, I won't finish with a clean sheet at the end. Yeah. Do you expect Manchester United to put it up properly to PSG over the two legs? Like at this point, it feels like they are a live contender to knock PSG out. It feels to me, anyway, with the the sense of confidence that they have and also the talent. Like it's not just the attacking players who are playing better. Nemanja Matic is playing better. It seems to me under Solskjaer where he's allowed to pass the ball forward where he's allowed to be himself and, and still be that very good defender that he was but like to get his head up and to look forward and to, I don't know just to have that sense of confidence yeah I thought he I thought he's someone I've obviously given quite to whom I've given quite a lot of stick I thought he played quite well in the first half in the second half I would still be saying well how Spurs get an United's defence on this many occasions if you're doing your job properly the thing the thing about PSG is that they have it's hard to see how United are going to be able to shut Neymar and Mbappe out of the game with weight of numbers because the balance of one on each side is problematic. A little bit different against Spurs, who don't play with wingers like that. So you think, well, if you can stop Harry Kane scoring, then Spurs are going to have a problem. Um, so I think that United's best chance probably is, as you say, to fly at PSG from the off and try and score twice in the first half. Because if you look at the, what they're going to have to do if, with the second leg in Paris you would say you're not I'm probably going to need two goals. If they go to Paris having won 2-1 or 1-0, that is going to be very difficult for them. So I think that it is possible that they could score three or four times over two legs against PSG. But if they defend like they defended yesterday, then they'll concede five or six times over two games. And Because you can't expect De Gea to save everything again. You can't expect the finishing, which I don't think was, was that bad, like against lots of goalkeepers, if you put the ball very close to their body, then it's actually pretty hard to get down to. It's just that De Gea is so good with his feet that he's not like other goalkeepers and his reactions are so quick that he, he, he saves things that other people wouldn't. And not only that, he makes them look routine. But PSG's finishing will be better. And you can't expect Mbappe and Neymar and Cavani to miss the chances that Spurs miss. So United will need to think about things and they will need to find a way of playing that is not their natural way of playing because they're not good enough to just go toe-to-toe with a team as good as PSG. But they've got a chance. And I think really, if they want to make the most of that chance, they need to sign at least a centre-back or a midfield player. I think that they won't. Well, that's the thing. You, you point out the obvious flaws that still remain with this Manchester United team, that this doesn't really seem like the ordinary managerial bounce where all the parts are still fully working together in as close as possibly, as close as they can possibly be to perfection. It seems that there is still an element of improvement within this Manchester United squad under Solskjaer's reign, which must be extremely encouraging from a Manchester United point of view. Yeah, for sure, because what you're looking at now is under Mourinho, you're thinking... Who are the good players? Who's I'm not quite sure who's good because the ones you think are good aren't really getting a proper chance and they're getting dropped off to one bad game. What is the best team? And who does the, who do you not, what do United even need? Now under Solskjaer, after six games, that just isn't the case. What's the best team? Well, you know what the best team is. You saw it in his first game and you saw it yesterday. That's what the best team is. Um, and so now it's a matter of saying, well, actually, where are the holes? And it's just some, and you just have to sign the right players to fit those holes. That's difficult to do. But you can say, well, they need probably two midfield players and one or two centre-backs, depending on how good you think Victor Lindelof's going to be. But that's what you need. You don't need a striker. You don't need wingers because you know now that Rashford, Martial, Lingard are a useful front three. And you've got Lukaku and Sanchez in reserve. And you've got some players coming through in the under-23s who are good players and who are going to be really good players. It's a matter of filling the gaps in the squad. So, and that's what, what Liverpool did. 
they got to a point where they thought, actually, Jurgen Klopp knows what his best team is. He's found a way of playing. He's getting the most out of the best players. Now what he needs is he needs some guard in midfield. So he signs Shakiri. He needs a goalkeeper and he signs a centre-back. And he signed those players. And that's what United need to do in January and in the summer. And um, I guess we're kind of moving on to that question of who's going to be the person that gets to pick those players. And I said when we spoke well, after Solskjaer got appointed that it wouldn't be enough to smash the teams that United should be smashing. You need to start getting some results in big games. And we saw the first one of those yesterday. And we saw, we saw it done via thought and tactics and preparation, which tells you that it's not just about he's being nice to everyone. He's not Mourinho. He's telling them to express themselves. He's doing something more than that. And if he carries on like that, then he will probably make an unanswerable case to be given the job. Yeah. It was interesting that Southgate got a mention at the weekend as a potential for this. Like, part of me feels like that's exactly what should happen, that everybody who is available, who has shown any aptitude for managing at a level similar to this, um, you can make the case that maybe international football isn't quite the, um, the same over a sustained period of time as the Manchester United job. But like, if you're doing due diligence, you think of Gareth Southgate as a potential Manchester United manager, and if that's all this is, then fine. But if they actually give it to Southgate, then it becomes a slightly different issue. Yeah, yeah I mean, you'd have, you'd have a look at all the available candidates, and that is about time, because Moyes was presented by Fergie as a fait accompli, and it was a ludicrous appointment. Van Gaal, I felt the times was a less ridiculous appointment because he had a brilliant World Cup where it's just so rare that you watch a World Cup and the role of a manager in the exceptional progress of a team beyond what you would expect from them can be literally attributed to the decisions made by the coach that you've seen. Uh, but it was the wrong appointment. And Mourinho was also sort of presented as a fait accompli when there were other options available at the time. So yeah, it does make sense to speak to Poch, to look at Pochettino, to look at Allegri, to look at all these people. Southgate, I don't think, is the right man for the job because I don't think that he's assembled a body of work yet. Where if you look at England in the World Cup, they didn't really beat anyone good. And um, they produced two or three really good first-half performances, then faded in the second half, and Southgate was unable to do anything about that. So, for example, in the semi-final when they played Croatia, England played really well in the first half, should have been out of sight. And Southgate seemed to assume that Croatia would just play that badly again in the second half. He didn't really make any changes and his game management in the course of the tournament seemed that he was unable to affect the flow of the game with sensible substitutions. And even in the, in the, in the Nations Cup, the win over Croatia was uplifting, but it sort of came in the chaos rather than anything sensible that Southgate did. And the thing about Solskjaer is if he gets the job, it will be because he's made a case by getting results for United. And I don't think that there's anything Southgate has done or can do between now and then that would rival the case that Solskjaer has the potential to make. If he ends up getting the job, it will be because he's won loads of games with United and done it in the right way and plotted in such a way that it shows that there's a future for his management. And the other thing about Southgate and Solskjaer is if you say that they're similar in that neither of them has done anything remarkable in the top level, Southgate doesn't have that much authority with non-English United players. Whereas Solskjaer is slightly different because he's a club hero, which is going to make some of the players feel like they should listen to him because he's accorded respect by other people that they respect and accorded respect around the club that gives him slightly more authority to go with the power that you get as a manager of United. Yeah, Ferguson uh, also being there. Like, I wouldn't have been terribly surprised to have found out afterwards that Ferguson wandered down to the change rooms to say hello to everybody, you know, just as a, a bless you, like uh, an old pope. Uh. 
let, just to briefly talk about Liverpool before we um, finish up here, they're grinding out the wins in a way that they have to do if they're actually going to wrap up a league title uh, this year. And, and just uh, there was a lot made of how important this game was going to be after the two successive defeats. Granted, one was in the cup, but uh, these matches in the past have tripped up potential title winners and the manner in which they managed to scrape a 1-0 win is exactly what you want from a, a, a team chasing a title. Yeah, I agree. Like I've obviously, as you know, gobshotted on here all season that I don't think Liverpool will win the league and I don't think they'll get particularly near winning the league. Uh, that is beginning to look like gobshiting, it's got to be said. <laughs> um, I, do, I mean, I do think that City will win the league in the end because there's too many games to go and you always, always ask yourself the question, which team is better? And I think you, I, I, just, I don't see any way that City aren't better. And Liverpool had the good fortune to have a brilliant purple patch while City were without uh, David Silva, Fernandinho, Sergio Aguero and Kevin De Bruyne. And City is still in it. So I do think that it was a huge win for Liverpool because if they don't win that and then City do win, the lead's almost gone and you just the momentum begins to reverse when you've gone three games without a win. But they managed to find a way. And at the moment, the reason why they're in front and the reason why I'm reevaluating and thinking perhaps this will be close is that Liverpool are finding a way to win all the games that you would expect them to win. So then if it comes down to, if, who, if the champ, league champions come down to who wins against the other decent teams in what's left of the season, then those are going to be very fine margins. So I do think City will win the league, but I do think that was also a huge win for Liverpool. And again, if they can keep, if they can keep their key players fit, if they can keep Salah and Van Dijk fit, then, then they've, they've got a chance. But... Um, I do think that City are, I mean, you're beginning to hear the Jaws music when City come out to play now. And uh, that's not the case with Liverpool. They haven't had, they haven't had a bad patch yet. So I, was, I still expect City to win the league, but Liverpool have got a chance. There's one other thing I wanted to ask you about, Daniel. There's a fellow who's been given the Player of the Weekend award here in the Guardian called Declan Rice. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. Uh, he seems pretty good. How many England caps is he going to get? Um, I don't know. It depends. Uh, I mean, who wouldn't be seduced by being built around by Mick McCarthy? Um, <laughs> I think that um, it's it's really hard to knock out opinions about who you think players are going to play for and who you think players should play for because the individual of a particular the identity of a particular individual is quite frankly none of anyone else's business. And so, I mean, I saw it particularly when uh, when Wilfred Zaha decided to play for Cote d'Ivoire, not for England. And Gareth Southgate, who generally seems like quite a nice guy, basically suggested that he wasn't as committed as other players and started using tropes that it's not really acceptable to refer to. He compared him unfavorably to Jermaine Defoe, who would do anything for England. And um, again, that, like his identity is none of anyone's business. And you should never be surprised when a team, when a player decides to play for a team that you think is less good than the one that they could play for, because these things are complicated. Danny Welbeck's another one. I was at, I was at Danny Welbeck's um, England debut. It was against Ghana because my wife's gone in and I was in the Ghana end. And when he decided he was playing for Ghana, I thought, ah, he's playing for England, not Ghana. I had a brief moment where I thought, that's a shame. I'd have preferred you to play for Ghana. And then I advised myself and I realised that how he identifies has absolutely nothing to do with me. So back to Declan Rice. Um, I'm not going to give an opinion about who I think he should play for because it's up to Declan Rice who Declan Rice plays for. But, yeah, he looks a really talented player. And um, it was um, he's able to do a lot of things, which is also really interesting. Because I think what we're getting in young players is we're getting really skillful players who are really good on the ball and a really good touch wherever they play. And Declan Rice is a defensive player, but also looks like he's able to defend. And we saw from his finish that he's also got excellent technique. On uh, goals on Sunday yesterday, um, 
Miguel Antonio was saying they give him loads of stick in training because he should score loads more goals than he does because he's so good on the ball. And he also said that he thinks his best player, his best position is in front of the back four. So um, I think that he's someone who looks to have all the potential to do everything and looks to have the right character to get on with doing everything. But yeah, I don't know who he'll play for. Um, so he's been linked with City obviously this week um, but the way you're talking about him there and how Manchester United have clearly identified a hole either as a centre-back or as a, a defensive central midfielder he could equally work for Manchester United right? Yeah I think we'll see a few like we'll see a few players bought in that position because like, City as we've seen this season they tried to sign Jorginho um, I'm not sure I think they might have been well out of that one as it happens but they tried to sign Jorginho and they struggled when they didn't have Fernandinho Um Everyone wants Frankie de Jong. Uh, Spurs apparently are trying to buy him. So United need a player for that position as well. So, yeah, it's quite hard to see Declan Rice not... It's quite hard to see Declan Rice being at West Ham in the summer. And um, he will probably get a move to an English club some, uh, in the summer. I, would, I mean, I'm guessing. Uh, and might be Manchester United, might be Manchester City. But if Pep Guardiola wants you, then and um, if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wants you, then... Yeah, there's a there's a good chance that you're you're a serious player, and it's definitely if Mick McCarthy wants you. Yeah, I mean he's um, he's been liking comments on Instagram, and it's been making the news here that uh, somebody somebody Instagrams uh, future Irish captain, and he liked it, so therefore he's back, baby. Present Irish captain is what I say. Just give him the captaincy yeah, yeah, now. Yeah, straight away. Forget the green jersey. Yeah. Should be prime minister. Yeah. Well, you know, there might be an opening. Uh, Daniel, great stuff. Thanks a million. See you again, guys. Daniel Harris there giving us um, some thoughts on what's going on in the world of English football. We didn't get to Rio Ferdinand and Mike Ashley. No, we didn't. And uh, Passionate defence of Mike Ashley. Newcastle fans should be grateful. They should um, prostrate themselves down in front of him. At his knee. Kiss his feet for saving that club. Most importantly, though, Richard Keyes backing him up saying, well said, Rio Ferdinand. If Rafa loves Newcastle, as he says... <coughs> Spend some of his own money. He's got enough. <laughs> Management is about teamwork. Why should it always be Ashley? Buy it. It's still for sale. They're in the bottom three and Rafa is responsible. He picks the team. Which I'm sure he is just looking for a reaction there. No man can possibly miss the point that spectacularly. 3,000 likes on that. Like, it's all ironic likes. Like, nobody is actually thinking... Sunderland fans. That... Yeah, exactly. No, nobody is really in agreement with that. It's like there's. I, I saw people tweeting him saying there's problems with the NHS. Should nurses buy hospital beds? Yes, of course they should. Yeah, I mean, of course they, they should. They're, they're rich. Um, this this little um, tab of the weekend at a glance in the Guardian is actually pretty good reading from an Irish perspective. Of course, player of the weekend was Declan Rice. Shane Long makes team of the weekend. Oh yeah, he was excellent on Saturday. Yeah, he was really good. He won the penalty um, that got their first goal, obviously, and then scored a second, which uh, you're like, not given to him. You are, you are uh, gooseberrying. The, the, the only reason I'm giving this goal to Shane Long is because it set up one of the more remarkable modern footballing statistics that his last four Premier League goals have come under four different managers for Southampton, which is an astonishing statistic. But if you watch that goal again, now it's not a known goal, like if you get into the nitty gritty of the law, was his shot on target? I dare say it wasn't. I, I, I say Casper Schmeichel gave him a massive dig out in terms of putting that one into the back of the net. But he deserved the goal. He was brilliant and he does make at the Guardian team of the weekend. The one Irishman who did get screwed over, I feel, in the goal-scoring stakes was actually Jeff Hendrick yeah. for one of uh, Burnley's own goals. Now, the Burnley game was just classic Burnley. They uh, burnley the life out of Fulham. They didn't have a single shot on target and still managed to beat them 2-1, despite the fact that Andre Schurla scored one of the goals, probably one of the goals of the month. I don't want to say goals of the season. And it was completely deflated by the fact that Burnley beat them without getting a shot on target. But I feel that Jeff Hendrick's shot 
had a very good chance of being on target. It was one of those that you're, you're cutting in, you're on, to the right of the goals, but with the right boot. Just with the outside of the boot, it might have just curled in and gone in off the woodwork. I, I suspect that's what, what would have happened with, with Hendrick's effort. But the statistics people said it wasn't, and it was given as an own goal um, to uh, a full own goal at that point. So uh, that's a bit of a shame from that perspective. But there are green shoots from an Irish perspective. Kieran Clark as well, scoring against Chelsea on, uh, on Saturday which has to be one of the more dour post-match press exchanges I've ever seen between Maurizio Sarri and Rafa Benitez. Benitez, of course, at this point, everything is doom and gloom and everything he says just feels like a really sad movie. And uh, Sarri and all his Chelsea players just can't find a smile no matter where they look. Even when they've won, it kind of sounds like they've uh, just suffered a defeat. So the Kieran Clark uh, goal came in, in that particular exchange. So I don't want to use the phrase good week for the Irish, but, why not? Why not? Go on. But do it. In, do it. The, in the in the context of where we've been at for the last week, is year it like so, one of the greatest I've, weeks? I've got to press the button right now and say it was a good weekend for the Irish in the Premier League. Okay, somewhere, my heart just felt a shiver down his spine. Oh, what happened? Did somebody tempt fate? Right, let's move on because uh, it was a good week for Seamus Coleman back in the team yesterday as Everton beat Bournemouth by two goals to nil. We had commentary of that game on off the ball. Stephen Doyle was the commentator. He went down afterwards into the bowels of the stadium and had this conversation with James Coleman. Have a look. I know there was a bit of maybe a doom and gloom around the Irish squad after last year, what, what happened, but you look what happens this weekend. Kieran Clark has scored for Newcastle. Jeff Hendrick was a big player for Burnley yesterday. You are playing well for Everton. Like, things kind of seem to be coming together at the right time now for Ireland. I think, yeah, look, we want to we wanna give a lot more to, to, to Ireland. You know, the Euros was a, was a great time for everyone involved and the management team were great to get us that far and, and now the, the changes have happened in the management team and with that we'll always bring in, bring in excitement and then once again it'll be, it'll be down to the players to, to perform and I think a lot of players you know, are doing, doing very well at, at club level. You know, Matt Doherty's come into the Premier League this year and, he, and he's been great and as you said, Ken Clark and for me, Shane Duffy, He'll never get the the headlines over here because uh, he's not uh, maybe an, an English centre half. And but for me, he's he's top top centre half and week in week out, you know, throwing his body on the line. Now he's I think he's got four Premier League goals this season. So we have got some very good players, and as I said, Shane Duffy is definitely one of them. And has Mick McCarthy been in touch with you? Or you're obviously the skipper. Has he spoken to you on the phone or anything? Yeah, I've I've been in touch with the manager, and uh, you know. Talking about uh, the team and, and what's ahead, and you know it's just up to myself to go to go into him and and do what I always did, and I'm sure he'll be looking forward to, to to getting all the players on board because there's no friendlies before before it gets competitive, so I'm sure he'll be trying to get as much work as he can, and you know it's an exciting time for everyone, and then uh, having Robbie on board as well will be will be great for the lads. Can we give the squad the boost that it needs going into these big games? As you said, there's no friendlies straight into qualifiers. Yeah, I think of course that's why uh, they've picked Mick as a manager. He's got a great passion for the country. He's managed the team before, and um, he'll he'll get a lot of respect uh, from the lads. And you know, as players now, we've got to. You know, there's no excuses anymore. We we've got to look within, as I always say. Look at the players, and we've got to we've got to show up. And uh, I fully believe that we got the players, and and I think we'll have learned a, a hell of a lot from from that, the last year. It was quite poor, and sometimes you learn you learn the most when things aren't go- going well. The debate raising at home is: Can Matt Doherty and Seamus Coleman play in the same team? What do you think? Uh, that's that's up that's up to the up to the manager. I'm sure. He'll have his, his decisions to make and, you know, you can keep debating, but it'll be Mick McCarthy's choice. Shame, or I should say, Kieran Tierney and 
um, and Andy Robertson have done it at Scotland two really good left backs played in the same team so it is possible yeah of course look um, it's, it's possible you know uh, that, that'll be the manager's decision I think if he can get as many Premier League players in, into the team and I'm sure he'll he'll, uh, he'll be doing that and as I said some lads in the championship are doing very well as well so so it's exciting but uh, the Irish team's not about uh, me and Matt it's about 11 players and uh, all the lads in the squad and more importantly the manager and the fans as well i just ask you finally because you know the League of Ireland so well Stephen Kenny's going to be taking over the under 21s and you know eventually taking over the senior team as well what were your own thoughts on that? Yeah look um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm one that uh, likes to see hard work be rewarded and I think Stephen Kenny has done a great job at, uh, with Dundalk, you know, over the last uh, over the last few seasons, you know, winning the league, I think maybe three out of the last four, and then uh, doing so well in Europe, and maybe losing losing some of his best players every season, and then uh, finding a way to get new players in and, and continue to keep winning. So he's got something about him, and uh, I'm sure he'll be he'll be itching to get involved with the with the twenty ones now and and show what he's about at that level, and then. We need to do our job for the next two years and, and then Stephen will, will step in and, and fingers crossed he can do well. Yeah, always interesting to hear from Seamus Coleman. Always very generous with his time after uh, we do those games as well, speaking with Stephen Doyle yesterday. You can watch that whole bit, uh, interview up on youtube.com forward slash off the ball. You can also always get all our stuff if you subscribe to our Twitter feed on uh, twitter.com forward slash off the ball. Darren is here. Darren, how are you? I'm very well, dear. Good, Good morning, morning to you. yourself. We'll start with the latest from the tennis and Andy Murray has started his Australian Open campaign. The Scot playing Spain's Roberto Batista a gut just a few days after revealing he plans to retire due to a hip injury going with serve so far and Murray looks to be more comfortable than he was in that practice match. He wasn't moving well at all but Murray and Batista got a level at 4-4. Rafa Nadal has got off to a winning start at the Australian Open. The number two seed beat James Duckworth in straight sets. <laughs> Maria Sharapova. Darren has just ruined our show for the next two weeks by reminding us that the Australian Open is on while we're on and uh, as he was doing that, Owen in the background went straight for the TV. TV. On. Like, oh, I just turned it straight back off again. It's going to be goggle. We're literally going to be just goggle boxing for the next two weeks. Going, Ooh. It'll be less interesting when we've got a black screen. Yeah. Oh, you you can turn it on and hit No, hit I, I, just, I couldn't. The mute button flat fingers. Can't I, get I, I'll, I'll look after it later on. Keep going. Right. Nadal beat James Duckworth in straight sets. Maria Sharapova and Angelique Kerber have also won their first round matches. With the football, Paul Pogba says Manchester United's winner against Tottenham came straight from the training ground. Marcus Rashford got on the end of a perfect pass from the Frenchman before slotting past Hugo Lloris to hand United a 1-0 win over Spurs. The Red Devils are now level on points with Arsenal, who are in fifth place, six behind fourth place Chelsea. There's the latest standings after yesterday's action. We can hear from Paul Pogba now, the midfielder, says they were well prepared for the game. We knew that was the, the weakness of uh, Tottenham when they attack in one side. They really... They get high and we, we needed to attack in the in the opposite side. So we've been training and that's what we did and we, we scored a goal. So yeah, we were we were prepared on this. We knew it will, it will be a very difficult game and we knew we could uh, um, hurt them in uh, in this counter-attack. That's what we've been working on last week and uh, on this attack. We knew we could hurt them like this. Obviously, they're, they're very good with the ball. When they, are with the, when they are with the ball, they know where to go. They have this, uh, this um, how do you call it, pattern. And we knew that that was the key of uh, of uh, of the uh, of uh, creating chances. 
Yeah, Paul Pogba there. Pretty interesting comments as well, mentioning that the tactics of Jose Mourinho didn't particularly suit him or bring out the best in him after the game, speaking to Jamie Redknapp on Sky Sports. While Tottenham Hotspur could face a potential striker crisis at the moment, their leading scorer, Harry Kane, hobbled off in stoppage time. The England captain caught late by Phil Jones. Defeat left Spurs nine behind the league leaders, Liverpool. Manager Mauricio Pochettino is worried having lost Kane to similar injuries in each of the last two seasons. We'll see what happens in the next few days. We need to assess uh, him, but it's uh, a little bit swelling in his uh, in his ankle. I think everyone can can see uh, so the the, um, uh, the tackle on the end, less makes uh, him. But uh, yes, it was a a, a, bit, a massive tackle. I don't know who was, but uh, yes, we'll see. We need to assess. Hope that is not a big issue. Meanwhile, Munster know now what they have to do if they're to finish top of Pool 2 in the Champions Cup. Exeter Chiefs recorded a bonus point win over Cast, leaving Johan van Grand's side four points clear of the English side going into next week's clash at Thomond Park. The Premiership team must win if they are to progress. Should Munster lose, they'll need to get a bonus point and hope Exeter don't secure one of their own. If both teams are tied at the top of the pool after next week's match, then Exeter would go through as the group winners as they would have scored more match points in the two games between the sides. Leinster's hopes of qualifying in the top two seeds for their quarterfinals suffered a bit of a blow. Saracens beat Leon 28-10 to jump back ahead of Leo Cullen's side and Racing 92 and secure qualification to the last eight of the competition. Leinster will now be hoping one of Saracens or Racing lose in the final round of pool games while they'll need to beat Wasps in England. Ulster say they will robustly investigate any complaints after Simon Zebo claimed he was abused by fans. The winger was booed by the crowd after scoring a try for Racing 92 against Ulster in the Champions Cup on Saturday. The former Munster man then tweeted after the game, I hope my ears deceived me with some comments directed my way from the crowd. Hashtag not on. Django wins in the end. Now some took the reference to suggest that the abuse was racist in nature. Django Unchained, a Quentin Tarantino film about an African-American slave. In Gaelic Games, Breed Stack has brought the curtain down on her glittering career today. The Cork player has announced her retirement in the Irish Examiner. She says, I'm moving on with the best memories, stories and friendships that will last me a lifetime. You'd love to do it all over again. It went by in a fecking flash, but life moves on. There is still a great team and they're well capable of recapturing an All-Ireland. The future is good. Ladies football is a great spectacle now. Stack, one of just four players to win 11 All-Ireland senior medals with the successful Cork team alongside the likes of Deirdre O'Reilly, Breach Corkery and Rena Buckley. Remarkably, the imperious defender played every minute of those 11 successful deciders at Crow Park and her mantelpiece includes seven All-Stars and the Footballer of the Year Award for 2016. Well, Joe Canning was the hero for Galway. He scored an injury-time sideline cut to win it. The former hurler of the year got the key score as the tribesmen edged Dublin by 21 points to 117 in the Walsh Cup semi-final. They'll face Wexford in the final after Davy Fitzgerald's men beat Kilkenny by 16 points to 13. Well, Tony Kelly stole the show for Clare. They won the Munster Senior Hurling League yesterday. The 25-year-old scored 2-3 for the banner as they defeated Tip by 419 to 118. You're done. That's me. All right, good stuff. Uh, Andy Murray's in a bit of a battle here to hold serve. 5-4 down in the first set. We'll let you know how that one uh, goes on. Going to bring you this now. Bernard Jackman and uh, Irish Examiner journalist Brendan O'Brien joined Joe on yesterday's Sunday pay-per-view. Here's Jackman talking about Jacob Stockdale. There's a thing about Stockdale. So take his recent tries. I'm thinking of the Scarlets away game where he had a great run down the wing. And even the solo effort last night against uh, Claremont, where he beats a really good player on the outside 
who gets hands on him and then kicks and as happens in Jacob Stockdale's life now the ball bounces the right way that's the other thing like that has to stop <laughs> soon or else he's able to predict how a ball's going to bounce in some <clears throat> innate way that we don't realise but there have been a number of occasions like the Scarlets game like last night against Racing where taken in isolation you would say well the defender should have stopped him yeah. you know he had hands on him so that's just poor defending but it's now happening too many times so, so there's something he's doing when defenders get hands on him that makes him not as easy to stop as we think he might be he's a very strong fend handoff um, and he has that ability. He's for a big, strong, quick, athletic guy. He actually has very good footwork. So at the, as the as the tackler lunges, he's able to just shift slightly away again. Whereas mm. most players are committed to that to that running line, and and they're not able to have a late change direction. So it's not a flamboyant um, sidestep like we saw from the last try for Toulouse yesterday, Chesley Coburn. But he has very subtle footwork that just gets him that millimeter he needs to break those tackles. Right. And he did twice yesterday for the first try as well. Antoine Lassons. You know, for all manner, he should have been in touch. Yeah, but it's 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 it's, it's harder to work out how he missed the tackle than than um, than made it. But um, so- Stockdale seems to be a common denominator, though. Those missed tackles. And very few guys can do that. And I think now he's up there. If there's a British and Irish Lions um, tour this summer, you would say he's probably nailed on to be the starting winger. All right, so that's uh, Bernard Jackman sticking um, Stockdale and the Lions team. Uh, good morning to you, Alan Quillen's here with us. How are you? Very good, thanks. Yeah, pretty joyful weekend for um, for Irish rugby fans generally. Yeah, it was brilliant. Um, the worry was, I suppose, Munster away, but there was a worry with the the, the three um, Heineken Champions Cup ones. Really, you know, Munster's a little bit of fear about going to Gloucester and. Toulouse side then coming to Dublin who were full of confidence and self-belief and Leinster missing a lot of front-line players and then the power of Racing going to, to going to Belfast so there was there was no um, guarantee with any of the three of them um, Connacht had a good home win obviously in the, in the Challenge Cup as well but going back to the other ones I think Friday night first and foremost um, to have a comprehensive win like that they were very very comfortable um, Friday night was stunning yeah, it was, I think, because It wasn't Doster, a close win, it wasn't a drop goal in the last minute, it was a, we're better than you and we're crushing you. Yeah, um, Gloucester were very impressive to, to get away in Exeter, and I was thinking, God, that, that round five one for Munster is going to be difficult. Mm. And uh, Given on, on the back of what happened in Casts in round four, I think we spoke about the injustices before and maybe some regrets Munster would have had with managing the game and, and um, getting a result there would have come back to bite them, but... That was a fantastic response. But their form in recent weeks has been really good. And uh, the, w- the win against Leinster away in Connacht. Um, so confidence and self-belief is high. Um, They're full team. Yeah, well, that's the key. You know, look, it's, we know and, and everyone speaks about Leinster's depth, I think. And Munster have created a little bit more depth. if some options off the bench now. But still, you want the front liners available. And, you know, you, the, the ones that kind of jump out are, are Klein and Byrne in the second row, that engine room. Having Tommy O'Donnell back, um, he got a knock the other night again, but I thought he played really, really well. Um, Carberry was fantastic. Farrell back was significant for him because even though he's still a little bit off, yeah. he still had a massive impact. And when he carries the ball, he offers, you know, he's just so big and physical, he gets through the gain line. And he can pass. He can offload, he can pass, he can link. So they can build stuff around him, and he's a threat. And I think that helps Carberry as well. And, and Rory Scannell was really good. So well, I was going to say, they also do this other thing where they have a left-footed kicker who takes the kicks on the right touchline and boots yeah. it the length of the field. It's like Someone texted me last week, Jaron, said after the game and said, um, if that Munster team stay fit, they can, they can challenge. And you know, maybe because they played for Munster for so long, and 
I'm kind of restricting myself to getting too far ahead. Um, and, and they won't either. And let's be, let's be realistic here. You know, Gloucester were poor. But if that team stays fit and actually plays a number of games together, you think it'll take a good side to beat them. Yeah. Because they have a lot of good options now. And, but the key is trying to stay fit. And, and, and Johan van Graan deserves credit because he hasn't had his, that full, full deck and uh, opportunity to play those guys. And, and if they're readily available, they will take. The problem they have now is it, it, they may look like they've got to beat Exeter first and foremost. Um, they'll fancy their chances going to Thomond Park and they're a strong, resilient side who probably have their own regrets about the pool stages. Um, they'll, they'll, you certainly can't underestimate them, but Munster have just got to try and win that game at the weekend, but it looks like they'll probably still be away in the quarterfinal if they get there. Look, we weren't speaking to you over the course of Christmas and over the last couple of weeks when we kind of saw this graph of Munster slowly but surely getting an identity together, especially in the backs. Have they arrived close to that end point where you can see the plan that they have, especially in, the, in that back line? They've built a bit of momentum on, you know, and, and that's important when you get some big wins. And, and that's why the Leinster one was probably so significant psychologically that they, you know, trying to cope with another loss there would have been set them back, and you know, psychologically, it just was really important that they got that result. And then going to Galway, it was, you know, Connacht have been really good this season, and it was a strong monster side that went. And I thought we all thought there'd be a bit more rotation, but they picked a very strong side. So I think they were probably the the real winners of the the Interpros monster yeah. to get that one and, and away in Connacht. And that instills a bit of belief. And again, like I say, you have a bit of luck with some guys back. They still have some more players to come back. But what jumped out at me was the options off the bench. I think Jeremy Lockman has been really good recently. Um, James Cronin is out long term, which he's a loss to them. But Reese Marshall having him back and John Ryan coming off the bench. Billy Holland then came in for Peter O'Mahony. Um, you know, you just have options there now to make a little bit of an impact, particularly up front. And, uh, you know, we know if Earls and Conway get enough of a ball, they're, they're electric and they were brilliant the other night. And Mike Haley has actually improved and, and seems to be settling really well there and yeah. showing some potential. So um, the key is probably, you know, get through next week and hope, you know, there's going to be a lot of changes during the Six Nations period, but hope that the, the vast majority or all that group will be fit if they get to a quarter final and then try and keep them, keep them well and, and get a bit of luck with them towards the end of the season. So Peter Romani, it's unlikely he'll play this weekend. I think they can cope without him. Um, they have some other options in the back row. Clotail probably be back. Witcherly could play. It's a risk, isn't it? Um, it's sort of like a, it is, yeah. But look, I think if, he, if he's oh, injured, he's injured. It's, it's, it's kind of... Popped the rib. Popped the rib. Popped the rib. And popped and rib. I, and oh, I sorry. Have you done that? That's, yeah. <laughs> I haven't popped a rib. rib. I've got plenty. Yeah, it's it just the, the rib displaces a little bit and in, in the joint area, and it can be very, very sore. I was going to say that. I've done it to my know. sternum before, which is obviously your ribs as well, the yeah. centre point of your ribs. But it can be very, very sore, and for him to come off at How that stage, how do they get it back in? in it lift? just kind of stays where it is. It really and just heals up. And uh, yes. but he may play. Look, Peter Manny might play. You put on the big padding and the bubble wrap and strap it up. But is that almost one of the more impressive elements of Friday? Was that after he went off and then? Murray went off obviously about 10 minutes later yeah I think the scene was set though they'd, they'd laid out their stall with the scrums scrum dominance the pressure and the the Gloucester line out and now in fairness Gloucester's back three were really poor in fielding the box kicks and they knocked on a lot of ball and they made it easier easier for Munster but they went out with a real intent and um, 
a confidence that they were going to get the job done and, and you just you just had this feel about them that they're more steely, more resilient now because we, we've spoken about their away form. They know that themselves pre-Christmas. It wasn't good. Um, but this was a real clinical, strong performance. And Killer instinct just before half time. Yeah, well. and there was a couple of... And, and obviously, if you want to pick through some holes, you say they could have got a few more scores and probably should have. But That's they're the building. And to, to win 41-15 away from home against anyone in round five of Europe is is a seriously impressive result. Owen has um, listed off every single uh, person who might at any point have helped um, to bring to deliver Joey Carberry to his spiritual home at um, Tom Park. I think he actually drove him down the yeah. first day. You were, you were his taxi. He's pleased, but he was incredible, wasn't he? Yeah. The, the key here is after cast, people are saying he missed the kicks, his game management wasn't good, he was... Straight away, there was that pessimism there, which very Irish happens. It's very Irish. We we, we do that, don't we? We do it good. Um, but his feet are firmly on the ground, I think, and and part of that process is is good for him. It'll be a bit of a learning process. But he said it himself after the match: if your forwards don't deliver and don't perform up front and and set the the, the tone. Um, it's harder for halfbacks, and that's what they did in the last couple of weeks, and that's why he's excelled. He's he's a natural talent, yeah. and he's only going to grow into that that role more and more and get more confident. He hasn't uh, missed a kick since, though. He hasn't missed a kick, um, but that comes with a little bit of confidence and belief. And also, he, I saw Rog tweeting about it, and I spoke to him about it. Is 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 his ability to take it to the line and 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 really kind of test defense the, the defensive line, make defenders hold and stop. Um, and he did that really well the other night, and he brings other players into the game well. So, like I said, the forwards are really good, and they laid on a platform for him. One other area that was really impressive was defensively. They just looked like there was a massive enthusiasm and organisation. You know, enthusiasm is one thing. When one guy shoots out of the line and you leave a gap, he's trying to, you know, show loads of enthusiasm. But collectively, they were very organised, in good shape. And Van Grand spoke about it afterwards. Even when Ollie Torley scores that try after about 35 phases, Munster got better again after that because they scored straight away after that because you build belief, you build an energy around that kind of defensive shape. And if, you're, if someone scores on the sideline, we've always been told as players, well, you don't say well done, but you go, well, that's, we couldn't prevent that. You can prevent all that stuff, that narrow stuff, um, and they defended. They showed a real steel about them, and, and that's what they can build on that kind of stuff. Do they need to be more clinical? Yes, um, but I think that will improve if the more they get the the top top line players out in the field together. Is there an argument to try and get Carberry into the Ireland team at fifteen? Um, not at the moment, I don't think. But if he was to start there. He's an incredible talent and he's a great footballer and he showed that with Leinster last year. Um, he has that X factor and that ability to do something special. So I don't think it'll happen at the moment because I think Rob Carney will still be the full back for the Six Nations. But it's, it's an option and he is someone that you could easily put in there because he's that talented. Shouldn't you try it out now in the Six Nations um, so you're not doing it for the first time in the World Cup? Like... When we think back to the Lions, right, and um, you've got two really good 10s and we actually got way better, uh, the Lions got way better when we had both of them in the team. Like, we're not going to play Carberry at 12, very unlikely. I mean, not impossible. 
The problem I have with that, Ger, is do you then put Ross Carberry on the bench as your second ten? Or who's your second ten? Because if you have a full back, just say you did hypothetically play Sexton and Carberry in the team. Put Cooney on the bench. Yeah. Moving Carberry then to ten, there's a lot of reshuffling going on, and, and I don't know about, I'm not sure about that. All Black said it with, with Bob and Barry. Yeah, and yeah they can do that a little bit, but not for me at the moment. Anyway, but he can do it, absolutely. Is there an argument to start him a couple of games in the Six Nations? Yes, there is, yeah. Irrespective of health yeah. of Sexton, so that we... There is, yeah, yeah, there is. For the first game? No, not for the first game. Not against England. I think you can... You could... What's the point in just no playing against Italy? Again. Yeah, I wouldn't just play him against Italy. I think I'd, I'd maybe look at the Scottish or French game as well. Um, or maybe look, Sexton's going to start the majority of them. He's he's your number one. He's yeah, he's got a little year. bit of a niggle at the moment, clearly, because otherwise Leinster would have picked him at the weekend. Yeah, yeah. so there, if he can, but look, Six Nations about winning as well, Ger. I think, and uh, it's, not, it's not this one it, time. It's not. It is for me. No, <laughs> it I, is I, for me. But it can't be right because we we've traditionally done really well in the Six Nations of the year of the World Cup, and it's been irrelevant afterwards, except as a stick to beat the yeah, team but with. That's, but that's you were the best seven team or eight in the Six Nations. Away. Uh, you know what I mean? You've got to win in the here and now, and that's the way they'll be thinking. That's the way I think as a player. Win the Six Nations, England first. Win that, and um, make sure you're going to Cardiff, whether it's hopefully challenge for going for a Grand Slam but at least going for a cha- being in with a show to win in the Championship I know what you're saying I, and I fully understand what you're saying about um, it not being the complete and sole and dominating focus here's the thing I don't actually think we would have any less of a chance of winning against England with Carberry playing the way we are the way he is now like I don't think we would be like yeah, I minus know, I know, are I we know. minus two points minus three points minus five points yeah, I don't think we're like yeah, well, Johnny Sexton will be coming in chatting to you in a few weeks, and you'll uh, be working with him. <laughs> I won't think he, I don't think he'd be too pleased. Which is, uh, I just don't think the step down is as big as it used no, to be. No, it's not. No, look, there's no doubt about it, and and that'll actually spur Sexton on more. But he'll not want to give Joey Carberry a sniff, and he's right. As we saw, yeah, yeah he's right. <laughs> I'd be the exact same <laughs> um, if there was somebody else. Even if you're good friends, I, I was good friends with Simon Easterby all the way through, and we played against each other. We tore lumps out of each other, and it happened in training as well. And that's just the nature of it, the competitive nature. But, yeah, he proved that he's, he's getting better and he can manage a game better, and, and uh, we'll wait and see. Yeah, all right. Um, Annette Kent asks on YouTube, Carby left Leinster to get more time at 10. Why are you asking if he'll play at fullback? And then an answer from Sean Jay says, uh, because then he gets to be on the pitch at the same time as Sexton. And, and like definitely, like more big game experience certainly that's the way that Leinster had envisaged using him into the future would be play him at full back and um, play Sexton at 10 but it makes more sense for him that to, if you're going to start him in any jersey for Ireland it's going to be 10 because he hasn't that's where it's worked before for Joey Carberry in an Ireland yeah, but, jersey uh, but like, that doesn't necessarily mean that you I, can't do I it I think the option can come during games bringing him off the bench if you're chasing a game you want to change something up you want something different that you can. that's the way it'll happen we should talk about Leinster because um, Leinster's performance against Toulouse was as good as a Leinster performance as it's been in the group stages. I would argue almost ever because of the nature of the amount of players that they were missing, the quality, the number of caps, uh, the general sense that Ooh, this is a very young team um, and against a Toulouse team who had beaten them already this season and are absolutely tearing up trees in the top 14. Now, I don't know if Toulouse were into this game as the game wore on. They picked a side that suggested that they wanted to win. So 
Um, I think they made a mistake in putting Ramos at 10 and taking out Zach Holmes. Now, Ramos has played well in the last few weeks for him. Um, he's normally he's, he's normally full back and, and Maydard had been playing well at full back and they'd done a bit of rotation there and Ramos went well and of course they beat Toulon 39-0 at home and they go away and beat Eugène which is a good result away and any result away from home in France is good so they went with that formation and they quickly in the second half changed it brought Holmes back on and took Ramos off um, I thought he was really poor, Ramos. Holmes offered more of a threat, and it was too late at that stage. Yeah. Intimac at 12 has been sensational. He's such a lovely footballer. He's really intelligent, and he brings so many guys in around him. He's like an extra playmaker as a 12, because he can play 10 as well, and he didn't get a touch of the ball. He just didn't, they did not have the ball, and that was down to Leinster's ability to recycle, to hold on to it, to be relentless. And I think I heard Leo Cullen saying afterwards that even though they didn't get the scores and, and build up a big score, they asked so many questions and they were like, they looked... Now, they, to be fair to them, up to half-time, they defended manfully Toulouse and they didn't give up and they, they kept trying to put in the big tackles. But it just, it was wave after wave after wave and there was a real inevit- inevitability at half-time that the home team were 10-6 up against a strong breeze. Yeah and that their game management will be so much better. Their box kicks from McGrath, Luke McGrath and Ross Byrne, and their just overall kicking game. Toulouse couldn't get out, get out of their own 22 practically in the second half, and that pressure, and you sensed as the game wore on, they were just getting tireder, and mentally they were becoming a bit fragile. But Toulouse, Leinster were relentless now, and yeah. they were really... All their forwards, were, like it was, it was just as if... This was the standard that we want to be at with our tempo, with our pace, with our aggression, with our energy, and that all 23 have to reach this level today, and this is what we want of you. And they all did. When every, like, there was a few mistakes and there was a few errors that, that there always is, but just the pace and the aggression that they had and the relentless enthusiasm to clean out breakdowns and stuff like that and make tackles and just frustrate the life out of Toulouse so Toulouse couldn't play so you have a team who are full of confidence who throw the ball around who are scoring sensational tries in the top 14 and they're a little bit shell-shocked because Colby's not getting the ball he's probably the most dangerous player in the world Intimac the playmaker is not really getting it um, Gitoon in the centre the other uh, centre made one line break in the first half and they end up dropping it they showed a few little glimpses early on that they were quite dangerous um, but that's it their forwards are well beaten up front and, and um, Leinster t- they deserve a lot of credit you're missing Carney Levy O'Brien Toner Sexton probably leaving people out here Henshaw like you're not talking about Irish international all, you're talking about British and Irish lines top class world class inter- uh, international players you're taking five, six, seven of them out, and maybe another two or three. Fergus McFadden was missing as well. Um, yeah, they thousands of caps. There were about nine or ten, <clears throat> ten top top class players missing, and to be able to cope. So that was a timely reminder to the rest of Europe that we can cope with the injuries, and uh, we're still here, and and we can pr- produce the. The Leinster Munster final is going to be pretty good. <laughs> But this is starting again. Oh, Where well. are we going? Newcastle. That'll be a good weekend. Newcastle, good weekend, yeah. yeah. Be good weekend there. But it was very impressive from Leinster, <laughs> to be fair. Um, 
is there a kind of a, a strange uh, way that we haven't actually given Leinster credit for the mentality with which they approach games like this? Because you mentioned, say, the intensity, which I know is kind of a, a cliche around rugby teams, but I, I don't think it's been a cliche around this Leinster team. It's been around meticulous planning and fantastic setup and formation from the likes of Lancaster and yeah, Cullen. It's, but it's accuracy as well, and it's the pace where you do things, and, and, and their application is just... It's very quick, and it's it's there's loads of energy around the way they do it. So you can kamikaze fly into rocks and for five minutes, and then get tired and be a little bit off. They just keep a high level of the way they do things all the time, and that's what good teams do. And um, so I think it's players coming into form as well. Like I thought that um, Van der Fleer was amazing again, yeah. But it's like getting even better as the season goes on. And and you think of Sean O'Brien missing, Levy missing, Jordy Murphy goes up to Ulster. You yeah, know? I think as well at thirteen, it's going to be an issue now when it comes to who the hell plays alongside Gary Ringrose for Ireland. Like, can Chris Farrell play twelve? Somebody said no. You, will you say no? He can't. I Is never it? said that. I no, don't think somebody else. No, can, can he play twelve? I would imagine so. Um, I couldn't see why not. You're not the perfect 12? Possibly, yeah. You probably have why to ask. Why do you say that? Ask, well, because uh, like, your 13 is supposed to be your defensive mastermind and also this attacking thing. 12, traditionally, was I'm a big lad and I'm going to kill you. Obviously, Darcy was a small lad who could kill you. But uh, you know, he, have a big, you have a big he has the offload out the back of his hand, but he can also pass it both ways. So if we're going to do the reverse move off set pieces to... Jeez, he's thrown spanners into yeah. the works this morning, but isn't he? Uh, I would have thought at 12, I would have thought Bundy and Henshaw would have been a good bit ahead of Chris Farrell at 12. Maybe they're, you're right. They're at, there at the moment. Listen, he's, a de- he's definitely an option. There, I guarantee you if, if one or two, one or the other were injured... Those or, Chris Farrell. Yeah, he's an option there, and he could be a serious option as well. But the others are ahead at the moment. But, but Ringrose is a guaranteed I, I starter. Just think, I, think so. I just think when he touches the ball, he just offers something different. He, Ireland play better in a, from an attacking point of view when he's there. He's got stronger. He's, he's reading it again. At one stage, Colby looked like he was in the clear... Leinster were kind of opened up a little bit. He was running across the field and Ring was just stayed in his inside and just tracked him. And it was really intelligent defending. He didn't panic and kind of jump out at him because um, Colby wants him to do that and just steps. And um, I just think every time he, he touches the ball, and defensively as well, he's, uh, he's a different class. Um, Jacob Stockdale, <laughs> has, has he got some Jedi mind tricks going on against the opposition that... They go one way and the ball goes the other again and again and again. Yeah, I think the first try was more impressive um, because okay, he gets a little, he gets put away on the wing, but there's a number eight, Classens is coming across, who's a big, strong number eight, and he just bops him off him and just accelerates. Then he's it's incredible. I just think his strike rate is phenomenal, um, Jacob Stockdale, and and the second try, the bounce, he gets a bit of luck. But you nearly think when he kicks it that he's going to get it. You, yeah. you sense now when he puts one of these dinks in over the top, you think of the one in Twickenham, the All Blacks, this one, and he's done a good few more with Ulster as yeah. well. Um, great football. Feels like the opposition are psyched out. Well, he got very lucky with that one. There's three, three Racing players. They all go players. the wrong way. But you create your own luck if right. you put these little ones in there. But there's some sort of a, but there's direction. actually some sort. Of, there's a stat that I read a, a couple of months ago that ninety five, maybe ninety five percent of the time that you kick the ball away in your own twenty two, with grubbers. You know, if someone is attacking and you put a grubber through, that you don't score yeah. the opposition clear it up. Yeah, I think his stat is probably ninety five percent of the time when he kicks it, he scores. 
he gets it, you know, he gets there. But um, overall, the, the, the Ulster performance was um, a hugely impressive start. They kind of shocked Racing a little bit, who were missing a few players, but still have a massive squad. Um, and then they're hanging on for dear life. You know, 50, 55 minutes, I think it's it just changes. And But they're the type of wins that early on in... A they new, wouldn't have had, yeah. And also for a new coach, like it binds everybody together. So Paul Pogba earlier on was talking about the goal was a um, was basically because all week they'd been working on the fact that Spurs are, are weak down the left-hand side. So you know that Pogba's going into that change room afterwards and going, the work that we did all week showed up in the game and was hugely beneficial to us. You know that all those Ulster players are going to the change room afterwards and going, this guy, this head coach, this coaching team, they're, they're setting us up to win the biggest games of the season against one of the best teams in Europe. That's the type of thing that binds everybody together really fast. If it comes off. Yeah. And that's what we hear a lot about um, Joe Schmidt is the information he passes on. It becomes evident when they play. And that's how players start to believe in a coach. If you give information that's wrong and you don't agree with and then you're proved right in the game as a player that's when it is this, that disconnect yeah. so yeah I think McFarland has done he's obviously yeah, himself and his other coaches have, have done a job in setting him up right but also um, we mentioned a, a monstrous selection in the last couple of weeks and in November when they won the back to back games you kind of saw a team that's gone this is a good side now there's 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 a little bit of a better look about that. And yeah. they're coping without Henderson as well. Yeah. Um, so there's a better look to the side. Now, the issue they have, um, which takes a bit of time, and it's similar to Munster trying to close close the gap to Leinster and, and getting more depth in your squad. Ulster lacking a little bit of depth and quality um, if they get injuries and if, they, if, they, if, if, if some of those frontliners are missing. But they've given themselves a great chance. And the mood in the camp, you talk about United and the mood changing. Does it change a mood up in Ulster? No, totally. Which is good to see because they're, you know, it's great to see them back. They haven't made the knockout stages in five years. And they have a great chance now going to, to Leicester on, on, at the weekend. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they picked a B team for that one. Um, just a quick word about Connacht's performance at the weekend as well. Nearly lost this game with a penalty in the last um, minute that ends up getting kicked to the corner by sale instead of uh, going for the post to win it but again notwithstanding it's early in a new regime hard fought wins at home in this competition knockout rugby coming their way as well it's exactly what Connacht needs trying to manage both uh, Europe and, and, and the Pro 14 is, is, is a challenge and what Andy Friend has done since he's come in is, is completely changed the landscape there's a smile back on their faces. Their confidence is good. Their skill set and they're playing with a smile on their face again. You contrast that to 12 months ago where it was all doom and gloom and negativity. Um, and he's completely changed that. So he deserves a massive amount of credit, Andy Friend, for what he's done. He's kept nice and quiet, uh, head down. But you sense and you feel and you hear that there's positivity there. Even when they lose games, they're, they're kind of back to that team... They're not back as good as that team in 16 when they won the Pro 14, but you sense that that's where they're going, that their confidence is high, their attack is brilliant. They're a great side to watch. Yeah. Um, and again at the weekend, against a very strong sales side with a, you know, a, lot of, a lot of big names in their team, um, it was a good win. They nearly undid themselves in the end and probably could have been better. It wasn't their best performance, but to get that result and have a chance of... 
I always thought, Jaron, in you know, when you're heading off or when this period is over, around five or six, that um, if you can tick the box after round six and say we've got knockout rugby in, in Europe... Can we stick that tail up again? I just have a quick query here, right? So um, there's a little bit of an anomaly where you can have won three games and got your bonus points and be ahead of Connacht, even though Connacht have won four games. I just sometimes feel like you win more games. Yeah, it's the losing bonus point, and their points difference is better. Uh, their points, they're 39. Uh, if you look at the, the difference there, they're 39 better. So, Sale will be Pepper now with a bonus point at home. Yeah. Connacht have got to go to Bordeaux. I think they're out of it, Bordeaux. Will they put out a second team? More, le- more than likely. Um, you would hope Connacht get a bonus point. They've both finished in 22, and then Connacht have won more win and Sailor top in the group but and like the bonus point thing makes teams play and keep does, going to the I end as well you know you know the way in the um, you in could bring it down to wins I know what you're going to say well in the first, Six Nations then you can to win bonus the Grand points, Slam yeah. and you, you're guaranteed to win it you get super bonus points if like there's definitely a way to make sure that wins and winning games is more important than losing bonus points or anyway should we come back to that one again some other time when there's less to talk about because we're going to move on to the death chart are we we are indeed, yes. We're going to move on to Alan's depth chart. He's been picking Ireland's back row ahead of... That's not a nice, easy, easy job. One, yeah. No, yeah. So, um, basically, we've been going through the... We've done two positions already at this point. We had Mike McCarthy on last Friday going through the second row, and Bernard Jackman went through uh, his front row. Uh, so, we saved uh, your uh, back row until this morning. So, we're looking at uh, the, the first position here, which is six. Yeah, well, Peter Romani is the, is the starter. And um, I think re- there's a number of guys who can play six. You know, it's... Reese Ruddock, I thought he was fantastic at the weekend. Sean O'Brien can play six. Jordy Murphy can play six, even though he's more of a traditional seven. Um, Jack Conan can play there. Um, there's a load of options there. O'Mahony's the starter, and there's a number of guys then that you can put in right in behind him. Ty Byrne can play six. He can be an option there as well. But I just think Ruddock, um, Levy can play six. It's amazing. There's about nine or ten guys there. That's, but I think the front runner, obviously, at the moment is O'Mahony. He's, he's the kind of owner of that six jersey. I'm asking you the same question about Sexton. Do you manage O'Mahony's minutes during the Six Nations in any way? And give other people an opportunity to see how they would I get on? I think there'll be a bit of rotation in the back row. Um, I think there will, yeah, a little bit. But again, you try and tell these guys, well, you're not playing against Scotland or you're not playing against France. Because we need you for the World Cup semi-final. That's why. Yeah, but still, Jared, at the end of the day, they, you know, they don't play as many games as the English or French and... Their game management is quite good anyway. They'll, their minutes will be monitored. Um, but I know the point is you want to see someone else in there in a, yeah. big, in a big game if and it even, happens at the World Cup. Even different constellations, like what would, it, what would it really look like if we played two sevens and an eight? Yeah, yeah. Just like I think Levy can do that, van der Fleer and, and, and whatever, O'Brien number eight. Can, yeah. yeah, O'Brien can do it as well. Um, Jordy Murphy can do it. O'Mahony can go to seven if you were yeah. wanted to yeah. you know, go bigger options in the back row and stuff like that. In a way, the most difficult position to pick here is who is the fourth back rower. Who is the one who gets on the bench, on the bench yeah. every week because yeah. they recognise that he can play six, seven and eight. And Is it Rhys Ruddock? Is it Jordy Murphy? Is it Sean O'Brien? They're all good questions. <laughs> well, let's have a look at number seven here and see who you've gone for on your depth chart at this position. So Sean O'Brien is leading the way at open side with Josh van der Fleer, 
behind him and Dan Levy as your third choice. And, and again, these guys can all argue and say, well, why are you doing that? And I'm, Van der Fleer is the one in... Screw com- you, Quinny, they're all saying. They're Van, Van der <laughs> Fleer. Why am I only at eight? Van der Fleer is the one in, in control at the moment. He was incredible against New Zealand. He's formed for Leinster's sensational at the moment. And... You know he's a starter. What about Levy last year? He was incredible. It was incredible. a little ankle tackle. Uh, yeah, tackle by Van and, Fleer and in the DuPont. middle of the game. It's like yeah, and Levy was incredible last year. He was just sensational. And on his day, Sean O'Brien, you go back to seventeen, then and the Lions tour and the way he played there and what he can deliver from our, for Ireland, and that's leaving Jordy Murphy out. Um, you know, so there's. There's an incredible amount of options. Um, Tommy O'Donnell is another one that if he, you know, I was, I'm, I, 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 I tried to, I think Tommy's a great player, he's been very unlucky over the years. And another era, with all these sevens, Tommy could be in contention for the Six Nations, but he's not. And there's, there's a lot of other good back rowers as well. But I think Sean O'Brien, a fit, healthy and well Sean O'Brien, which is something, unfortunately, we're talking a lot about in recent years, is not happening for him. Um, he's just he's just a different level with his aggression, with his experience, um, I was what just, he's achieved. I was just checking. Uh, Marcel Cotsey started at eight, so Jordy Murphy has been playing seven, really. He has been year. playing seven, yeah. yeah, but he can play eight or he can play six as well. And yeah. there's loads of great options there, isn't there? If there was, I, I think O'Mah- going back to the six thing, O'Mahony he excels with the lineout option. You know, defensively and an attacking point of view, that's what gives him an edge. Obviously, he's really good at the breakdown as well. They all have different strengths. Yeah. Not many weaknesses now because they're all top-end players, you know. And um, so there's so many different options you can go with there. Let's have a look at number eight. I dare say CJ Sanders is going to lead the way here. Indeed, he does. Jack Conan. And then Sean O'Brien is your third option at number eight. Yeah, well, I think Sanders the one in command, isn't he? And he's the one who's been so consistent for Ireland um, in the last couple of years since he since he made his debut and it kind of coincided then with Jamie Heaslip um, having to retire who'd been there for so long um, Jack Conan you know to be fair to him he's he never lets the side down he was he had a brilliant game on Saturday against Toulouse and reminded people what he can do as well and, and rotate, you know bringing over an option like Sean O'Brien or to play at eight he can do that there as well and uh, so it's just when when you're asking to go uh, talking about back rows there are so many bloody options isn't there well that's the thing and I was going to ask you how do we compare in that position to the rest of the world you'd imagine that we've got the best back row options in the world at this point yeah I think I, I saw someone at the weekend tweeting that uh, the, the Welsh back rows are talking about Thomas Young that young son for Wasp that he should be in the Six Nations squad in the most competitive back row in the world I think Ireland's probably is the most competitive is Wales uh, number two? Uh, prob- yeah probably well you've s- Lydia is back playing well for him um, Falato played really well for Bath at the weekend um, Tipperick I think with Warburton gone I was kind of thinking is it as competitive for seven but then Ellis Jenkins who's also out for the year with a knee injury um, had taken over that kind of seven jersey for Wales, but they have a lot of good options as well. But these guys, they're, they're all internationals. And uh, honestly, if you played any any three there, you think. I think the one difference maybe is is standard is that he's kind of nailed down that jersey unless he has a really bad run of form. Uh, yeah, I think that Joe's going to just decide that. I've seen. You deliver for me in all it's the big games. for Jack Conan. Like to be honest, if Jack, I'm a fan of Jack Conan. If he started, I'm thinking 
no issue with that. But I just think Stander has uh, he's gone to a different level. His yeah. game has got so much so much better over the years. The seven position is always nailed down by the players fit. Whoever's fit, yeah, there's always doesn't it? There's always one or one or two injured, and um, and again, O'Mahony has the edge with the lineup. Like I said, obviously his overall play is really good. They're all brilliant players in their own right. And do you make the case then, if you're Schmidt, that if everybody's fit at the moment, that actually you keep O'Brien as your sub because he literally is the only one who can yeah, play he six, could, seven, he, eight he at could the same option, level. He could option. Uh, it could be a good option there. Um, but you can still start O'Brien, have Van der Fleer or Levy or, or Jordy Murphy on the bench and, and rotate it around a little bit there. If if you had to switch him to a, if Stander went off, game. yeah, yeah, it is, yeah, it's not ideal. Um, but I don't know, it's just a, such a conundrum. Um, like Dan Levy, he's he played at eight for Leinster and. People are kind of did that away bat game. Yeah, question of whether he could could or couldn't. Let's let's give it's an overall team performance. Yeah. And I'd like to see him play five six games. Of course he can play eight. Oh no, yeah, of course he can play at eight. Yeah, all right, good stuff, Quinny. Thanks very much Cheers, for that. Sure. That's uh, your depth chart there. We'll um, put up all of our depth charts uh, for you, and you can look at them on offtheball.com. Now let's move on to the NFL. What a weekend it was. Uh, Mike Carlson is with us to talk about. Um, a bit of a, a bit of an unusual. Maybe it's not that unusual that um, the best teams blow out the other teams at this stage of the competition. But I, I was trying to think back in terms of um, victories in the Belichick era, when there was so much doubt, there was so much suggestion that they were up against um, the Chargers team, who were brilliant on both sides of the ball. They were coming off a brilliant performance last week. This is as good and as dominant a performance as I can remember. I think you're right, especially that first half, and and you know, and lots of it's down to coaching. You know, I I, I can I can't remember um, seeing them come into a playoff game with a game plan that much different from what they had been doing, and having having it work so well. Uh, they they looked at what Baltimore had been successful with against the Chargers, uh, because it was basically Chargers defense that had won that game for them last week, and. They did. They took elements of that, but offensively, they ran what was quite a simple game plan in reality, um, attacking the Chargers primarily on the right side of their defensive line, which is Joey Bosa, who's a tremendous sack getter, but but not the strongest guy against the run. And they had Gronk over there, and they have Trent Brown, who's you know a 380 pound tackle, um, and they used them really well to set the run up. And they then they never stopped passing, even when they had the lead. And you think, okay, now they're just going to settle down with the run. They kept attacking San Diego. Uh, San Diego. I, I'm never going to stop calling them <laughs> San too. Diego, um, and uh, kept them off. Balance basically the whole time. Yeah, um, we've been talking a good bit about Josh McDaniels and why he would still be getting interviews after jilting the Indianapolis Colts last year at the altar, or even kind of uh, after they were at the altar. And I don't know; it looked like he was pretty good yesterday. Yeah, he did a pretty good job. The problem with the Patriots, of course, is that you never know how much of the game plan is McDaniels, how much of it is Bill, how much of it is Ernie Adams, the guy who quietly in the shadows does a lawful lot of their their scouting and game planning of, of other teams. And and um you know, I, I I didn't take too seriously McDaniels even going for an interview, which he did in Green Bay, simply for the fact that it seems pretty clear that he's the designated successor to Bill 
in New England. And, and that will be the really interesting part if and when Bill ever goes um, and, and if and when Ernie goes with him, uh, you know, how well Josh manages on his own. Would this be Bill Belichick's greatest ever achievement if the Patriots were to go all the way? That first one against St. Louis, you know, has to rate as a huge achievement, uh, you know, getting putting Brady in the lineup when he had to and then sticking with him when Drew Bledsoe was ready to come back and and game planning against the Rams, which was one of the great game plans of all time to stop that Rams offense. But I, I think you're right in the sense that this is on paper, at least certainly not certainly the weakest Patriots team uh in a number of years and certainly the one that you know out everyone looked at and said well they don't really deserve to be the second seed uh they lost five games during the season one was kind of a fluke but all five were to teams that didn't make the playoffs the um the ability that Belichick has to analyze what the opposition is doing and put his team out it seems really simple to not just have a simple a single style of play and an identity like and yet no sport in the world really does this happen the way it does just for the new england patriots yeah i I think you're absolutely right um they can come out with a completely different game plan week after week and and the players execute it and part of their um roster building involves having guys who are able to to cope with that with that kind of approach and part of Brady Brady's greatness is, is not that he's necessarily the greatest quarterback if you put him in any situations but he's certainly been the greatest one to execute in any number of styles, you know, over a season when they when they had Randy Moss, they were a deep ball team. Uh, in other years, they've been a dink and dunk passing team. In some years, they've been a run first defensive oriented team. But even within those years, they will change the game plan. I think there was a game when they had Moss and they went up to Minnesota and they they threw 50 times in the game. Um, they they barely ran the ball, and then there's others where that where they won't run at all. I, I think it's a remarkable bit of coaching, and and it's a remarkable bit of consistency, you know, particularly in the NFL, but really in almost any sport nowadays. But Mike, even yesterday, within like from um, from series to series, there would be a series where all they would do is run Sony Michelle or one of the others, or throw the ball short to James White, which is effectively a running play. And then there would be another series where all they would do is throw it. Like Brady was six of six in, in one of the ones that led to a touchdown before half time. And even within the same game, they're completely yeah. changing what they're doing. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, the passing series built off the running series, you know, and then, and then in reverse. And, and the thing is, they're not afraid to do that. Um, it, it's kind of like when you when you talk about um, when you talk about balance on on TV news or something. You know, does balance mean that on every single <clears throat> interview you have to have somebody representing both sides, or does balance mean you have to do it over the the length of the program itself, or does it mean you have to do it over the length of the whole platform? And and I think in in football terms, you know, Bill Bill is willing to establish balance, as you say within sections of the game and balance can be sometimes you run it all the time sometimes you don't and and they took advantage as they almost always do of of personnel in other words you put your personnel on the field the opposition yet generally the defense generally reacts by putting personnel to match up to yours but the patriots are willing to 
be versatile within those personnel groups, you know, and, and when Gronk could run faster than I can, um, you know, it, they were even more dangerous because he, you could send him downfield deep. Uh, now, now he's kind of limited to shorter routes, but, and when he runs guys fall off him, but he's not beating them with speed. Mike, you obviously would have known Bill Belichick for a time in his life. I think you were in college together. Like I'd imagine, and I'm not sure, but it seems to me that he would have loved and relished this opportunity last night with everybody writing Tom Brady off, but kind of by extension, writing his Patriots team off. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I said it last week. Even though I still wound up picking the Patriots for the game, you know, that, that I thought this was going to be a tough matchup for them. I didn't think they were as good on paper, player for player, as the Chargers, and and they they're so unused to being in the position of being underdogs. You know, they they're very rarely. Um, you know, picked by the bookies to be underdogs in any game. They get a lot of credit for being the Patriots and Bill does for being a coach that if they can position themselves in that sense, I, I, I think it's absolutely great. You know, it, they they do relish it. And I think it, it gives them motivation. What was Palatech like in college? Um, with me, <laughs> with me, yeah. with me, it was um, serious kind of um intense we played lacrosse in the in the spring of his freshman year and uh he was the only player who asked me why i was carrying so many sticks which was mostly because i was playing all the different positions but but um i had reasons for doing that and he was he was um very intense but i knew guys who knew him better and uh, he was a fairly wild guy in terms of uh university social life wow. uh, he joined a fraternity which was known um on campus as the lodge and was basically about as close as you could get to animal house i suppose in <laughs> in um in in terms of a kind of division three uh academic liberal arts college and wow. what was uh the usp the unique selling point of the lodge then uh wild uncontrolled parties was was the main was the main thing um it certainly when you walked into it it was certainly the you know how animal house had that decrepit look where everything seemed to be falling off the walls and it was about to collapse the lodge was a lot like that even though the building was made of stone it doesn't seem to me that that's the sort of environment that bill belichick would have thrived in but maybe it is maybe when he goes into the off season he lets himself go yeah you know it's it's one of those things where he he puts on a game face and maintains it really well um you know he but you can see you can see when he lets that down just occasionally but but it's all business for him you know he grew up in a family where his father was a coach and and he was at the naval academy growing up so he, when it comes to business he he is all business and and uh he's the best in the business have any of the books or documentaries ever really captured who he, who he actually is do you think i mean because the the two part of football life Not is, that I, is grand I've seen. Yeah. um although although you know the one on yeah the one on on um super bowl on the super bowl win against seattle uh, called Do Your Job, which I think NFL Films made or ESPN made. It, um, but I think that captures the Patriots really well um, and and his ethos that's, that seeps down to the rest of the team. Uh, you know, and, and I think that that was the um, – he's a lot more, what would you call it, sensitive than people think, mm. um, you know, on, on the personal lives be, uh, level.
Yeah, okay, that is interesting. The, the other thing about them being underdogs, they're underdogs for the game against the Kansas City Chiefs. And, you know, over the course of the season and given how amazing the Chiefs were and just how controlled they were in terms of their getting stuff done at the weekend, that makes sense. But, you know, history also suggests that um, making the Patriots underdogs at this point after a victory, a controlled victory like they just had, also doesn't make sense. Yeah, to be honest, uh, when I saw that it opened at a three-point line, I was a little bit surprised because, you know, three points basically calls the game a pick em, um because the home team, the bookies normally give the home team about a three-point advantage. Um, Belichick and Andy Reid is a great rivalry, uh, and neither has the advantage this week of coming off the extra week as they did um, as they did in their home games last week. The Chiefs are at home. They're, they played earlier in the season. It was a 43-40 game. Uh, where basically they, the Chiefs simply left New England too much time uh, at the end of the game, and they came down and got a field goal. I think the Chiefs' defense is stronger now than it was in that game. And, of course, New England is missing Josh Gordon. Um, so I, I think I was a little surprised, especially when you consider the Patriots this season were 9-0 and at home, but they were 3-5 and on the road. Uh, and all five losses obviously coming on the road. So it's going to be, it's going to be a good game and, um, you know, certainly a, a better one. But the Chiefs, like the other three teams, like the other two teams on Saturday, that you know, they both, Kansas City and, and the Rams, handled their opposition uh, relatively well, which this is the last, the, the divisional round is the greatest advantage, I think, in sports where the better team, the at least statistically um, gets the week off and the home field advantage. So they get extra time to prepare, to rest up. And, and, and all the teams took advantage of it. Even the saints who had a close game, but, but, you know, once they settled down, they, they more or less dominated for the last three quarters. At what point did we start wondering if Patrick Mahomes is going to get affected by the, the atmosphere just getting a little bit higher and a little bit higher and a little bit higher? Because, <laughs> That's a great that's a great question. So far he seems to be coping with it pretty well. Um and I think a little bit of that has to be Andy Reid uh and Eric Bieniemy the the offensive coordinator probably being a steady kind of force for them but it, every game he just seems to make a couple of plays that pull him, you know, that pull his team out of problem situations, pull him out of a problem situation and it reminds me a little bit in a di- I mean it's a he's a completely different player but of the young Tom Brady. You know when Brady when Brady stepped in there in that se- in that uh, first Super Bowl season, that's what that's what he did. He just wasn't affected by it um, at all. And you know what you saw too in those those first three games of the weekend, all three teams just had a huge. I don't normally pay a lot of a lot of uh, attention to time of possession because I think it's it's more a result of things, not a cause of things. Um, but, you know, you had a breakdown of almost 40 minutes for Kansas City, 36 for the Rams and 38 for New England in, in a 60-minute game. So if you've got the ball, that's usually because you're winning, but also be, obviously because you're playing well. Like, it's got to help and, Mahomes uh, living in the environment and growing up in the environment that he did, having a father who was a former professional baseballer. Like, the idea of being an elite sports person wasn't all that big a deal in the Mahomes family, so the pressure perhaps wasn't as high as it might have been elsewhere, or, or the sense of responsibility perhaps wasn't as ingrained as it might have been in other potential stars. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a, a good factor, and, you know, as much part of the genetic 
envi- uh, the ge- genetic patterning, 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 wh- whatever, um, as um, as his arm is. You know, his father was through a very fast, <laughs> fast pitch. Uh, was used to pressure situations, and and he would he would have seen that. Um, I, I just thought he, you know, he's just justifiably, I think, the MVP of the season. Uh, you know, 50 touchdown passes is what gets you there because uh, it's such an impressive statistic. But I think all around, when you look at the difference of this Chiefs team and some of the good Chiefs teams that, that sort of, you know, stumbled at a hurdle later later in the season, um, I, I think there's a lot to point to. Although my, my personal MVP for the weekend was Aqib Tlaib um, of the Rams, who in the week before the game, Demarcus Lawrence of the Dallas Cowboys said that they were going to take the soul of Jared Goff, um, the Rams quarterback. And after the game was over and Goff was being interviewed on network TV, <laughs> Tlaib stuck his head <laughs> in front of the camera and, and said something about effing souls <laughs> that weren't going to be taken. And to drop the F-bomb on national television makes him my like player of the week. Oh, he's going to get suspended for life for that. The um, the the Rams' victory is in many ways actually the most impressive of all of them because the Cowboys at least did put up a front against them. They did have a, a defense that um, was something for the Rams to work out, and the Rams decided that they were going to be play smash mouth old school running football um, with two running backs, not just one. Yeah, and you know, and it, it's it is smash mouth. It's not so. Uh, old school or unless you go back to sort of single wing days when when players would be in motion uh, go, going in opposite directions and misdirection but the Rams like like the Patriots and, and um, like the Chiefs were committed to running the ball uh, in, in these games and C.J. Anderson you just have to feel really good for because here's a guy who was released by two different teams during the season was out on the street when uh, the Rams picked him up and and if you remember him from his great his best days in Denver he was the kind of guy who was great at recognizing that first hole and getting through it and Denver's kind of um influence blocking everyone would block in one direction and then your runner would cut back against it Terrell Davis did it uh, Anderson did it they had a they had a bunch of guys they could turn guys into thousand yard rushers and he's just perfectly suited for that kind of running with the Rams and at no point were they afraid to put the ball on the ground it gave Todd Gurley a really necessary rest because they don't really want to overwork him given his continuing knee problems and I, and I thought it was great that even in the Saints game when they needed one first down to close out the game, it, they had a third and 10 and they gave the ball on the ground to Kamara and Kamara gained uh, 11 yards and the game was over. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's great that the four best teams clearly are still involved because, you know, there's no there's no team who's fluked a win or had an upset victory. It's like it's guaranteed to be close and good from this point forward. Yeah, I, you, you would you would hope so. Um, you know, the. You still have questions overall, say, about the Rams defense, about the Patriots defense, um, about the Chiefs defense, and even about the Saints defense, although they played really well for three for three quarters when they sort of adjusted to the way that Nick Foles played. And um, But I think that makes the games more interesting because you will get some of that, uh, the potential for some of that shootout 
uh, factor that that we talked about, you know, back in the in the fifth in the fifty four, fifty one, and forty three, forty days, um, and that's when defenses, although it it surprises you because you think, well, they're allowing lots of yardage or lots of points, but that's where one or two key plays or one or two key drives where you can get a stop become really important. Uh, there's just one other loose end we needed to tie up, Mike, before we let you go. You, you mentioned the Lodge fraternity earlier on. Was Mike Carlson a member of the Lodge fraternity? No. Um, actually, um, it, fraternities weren't a big thing then, but but um, they were they were on their way, sort of on their way out, because uh, this was the 60s, and that oh, that ethos didn't quite fit in. But I did join what what was a fraternity, a uh, national fraternity that took our, took themselves out of the national fraternity and just became sort of a local, uh, a local club because the national fraternity wouldn't allow, um, wouldn't, wouldn't allow black people or women to join the fraternity. It was fraternities being a, a band of brothers who just all happened to have the same skin tone. Um, and so I was you know quite pleased with that, but uh, in one sense, you wouldn't have found Stork, you probably wouldn't have found Stork or Otter over at the lodge. Um, you know, Bluto would have fit in really well, but um, Stork or Otter would have fit in better with us. Uh, um, although we were called, it wasn't uh, the Deke House like uh, like the Delt the other uh, house. We were Delt, um, so we were maybe we were better suited for Animal House. A uh, bunch of losers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Mike, great stuff. Thanks, William, for joining us. We'll talk to you again real soon. Okay, thanks, guys. Mike Carlson there. You can uh, follow him on Twitter. You can uh, get exclusive access to his stuff on Patreon as well. Um, yeah, so those games weren't as close as we promised everybody, but um, still plenty in them for people to... No, we, we kind of needed the necessary evil of this weekend to ensure that the rest of the season is going to be a uh, box office. And I think it's fair to say it probably will be. I know there's only three games left, but uh, greatly looking forward to it. If you're not on the bandwagon now, now is the time. Yeah. Yeah, we'll um, we'll wrap wrap up everything that happened in the GA world over the course of the weekend properly on tomorrow's show in uh, great detail. If you've got anything you want to get in touch with us about, you can just use the hashtag OTBAM. You can keep an eye on OffTheBall.com across the day for everything else that's going on in the world of sport and, of course, details about what's coming up on the radio on News Talk this evening with Joe. Off the Ball is back from 7 o'clock, the football show and Monday Night Rugby. That's your lot today. Good luck. We'll see you tomorrow. So, if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45am. Listener.